0: Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly.
1: Hey, it's Gonzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go.
0: Initialize
1: sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A
0: production of John Bald Baldface Truth.
1: I was thinking about the Portland Regional... NCAA basketball event It's going to be taking place Late March Into the first day of April Right here in Portland We will have center stage For the women's college basketball world Caitlin Clark Who by the way Has never scored fewer than 8 points In a game in her Iowa career That's all she needs To break the NCAA Women's basketball scoring record Fans have been filling uh, Carver-Hawkeye Arena to capacity all season. And people who uh, don't already have tickets are looking at prices on the secondary market that are $400 and up. Going to be a special night as Caitlin Clark tries to break the record. Number 4 Iowa Caitlin Clark. She'll be She's been good for the game, right? So as LSU Kaylin Clark's been good for the game in the same way that Angel Reese has been good for the game, in the same way that Sabrina Yadescu was good for the game, in the same way that a line of other players who have gone on from women's college basketball to the WNBA have been good for the game. There's no mistaking she's good for the game. I was thinking about it today. You don't have a ticket to the Portland Regional because it's... The way they do it in the NCAA tournament is they have two of the four Final Four teams, two brackets will feed into one regional. And so Portland will, will have two finals, regional final games as part of the four days, the four sessions of tickets that will be in at the Moda Center. And, uh, they will have two of the four Final Four teams at the same site. Now they won't play each other. They'll play at the Final Four, but you'll get to watch them advance. In the regional final, get a chance to see them play. It is a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday event. And last year, Caitlin Clark was in the West Regional, and it got me thinking about like what a hot ticket that might be if you are uh, if you have tickets to Moda Center and you have a chance to see uh, the the regional. T- you know, when teams get assigned and she gets put in the West Region, uh, there's a uh, a really good chance that Caitlin Clark will uh, be in Portland. And if she's not in the West region, you still have a 50% chance that she's going to be assigned to the Portland regional even though it's not the that bracket is not the West regional. So, we'll keep an eye on Caitlin Clark, but it has to be thinking about what's good for the game. She's great for women's college basketball. She just is. She's a star player. She plays uh, at a level that uh, is above what we are typically expect shoots from range that we don't we don't normally see in uh, college, women's college basketball and is a prolific scorer without a doubt and and much in the same way that LSU captured the attention of America last year in advancing to the national championship and winning it with a stacked team and Kim Mulkey on the sideline sporting you know a leopard uh, print suit jacket and pantsuit um, you know the, much in the same way that LSU was good for the game. Caitlin Clark's good for the game. And, and Patrick Mahomes is good for the game in the NFL. And Tom Brady was good for the game. And I actually think Brock Purdy, who was on the other side in the Super Bowl, is good for the game because there's a little bit of an everyman feel to Brock Purdy's game. Like I, I have just seen in the last 24 to 48 hours multiple comparisons of college quarterbacks who have flaws in their game to Brock Purdy. There's been multiple comparisons, including Bo Nix at Oregon, who doesn't quite have the arm strength of other quarterbacks who are first-round picks, and yet you have a bunch of people saying, hey, Bo Nix could go in the first round. Um, he's, He's good for the game, Brock Purdy. He's good for the game, Patrick Mahomes. In Major League Baseball, Shohei Otani is good for the game. Mike Trout is good for the game. There are players in... Uh, major sports who become the face of the enterprise. Giannis is good for the game in the NBA. Uh, you have uh, Nikola Jokic, good for the game. Steph Curry, good for the game, great for the game. Uh, young player like Victor Wembanyama, good for the game in the NBA. So I guess I would ask you this. As I'm talking about the players who are good for the game, who comes top of mind in your mind as you think about your favorite sport? Who's good for the game when it comes to the NFL? Who's good for the game when it comes to Major League Baseball or NHL or the NFL? Who is good for the game? And I and I got, you know, we started kind of poking around this a couple days ago on the show when we were talking about the spat that is going on between Draymond Green and Yusuf Nurkic. I don't at all think it's good for the game of NBA basketball to have one of the focal points of, you know, this point of the season – with the All-Star break approaching being uh, this disagreement between a marginal NBA center whose best years are probably behind him and an outspoken and troubled and problematic forward whose best years are behind him as well. And that that becomes the focal point of what we're talking about, and we're not talking about the star players in the NBA, the best teams in the NBA, although the Warriors have played much better, and we're not talking about um, the things that matter. I want you to tell me who's good for the game. 503-417-7575. It could even be the college game. It could be the fight game. You just pick your favorite sport and tell me who pops into your mind. Let's have a conversation about what and who is good for the game. And I think what we will see is we will see that there are some commonalities between a Caitlin Clark personality who can light it up on a, on a, you know, college basketball floor on a given night and who's going to set a record and become the most prolific scorer in women's college basketball history. And don't give me, oh, she had extra years. What I don't, I don't need, you know, look, count the games, count the shots, count the points, and, and then let's have a conversation about it. But sh- there's, no, there's no disputing. The ticket prices at Iowa, the interest in the ratings that she brings to games, if she gets assigned to the Portland, Re- Portland Regional, those tickets are going to just go bananas especially if she's in a regional final. And, you know, you've got, you know, her without question having some traits that I think we can all look at and say, okay, why is she good for the game? Well, her game's exciting. It's relatable and it's exciting. And, it you know, for people who have criticized women's college basketball as being a game that is inferior to the men's game, Caitlin Clark's range reminds you of some of the range you see in the NBA. Her creativity and scoring – Reminds you of dominant players that we've seen in women's and men's basketball over the years. Um, you know, the, the fact that, you know, she's a competitor. Uh, it's good for the game. I would say Steph Curry. I would say Patrick Mahomes. I would say Caitlin Clark. I would say that, you know, Shohei Ohtani. The commonality to me or the common trait that they all have, aside from their incredible abilities and their success is the fact that they look like they're having fun and they're enjoying themselves. I think that that it's good for the game when you see players who are joyful. Steven, you tell me. Who's good for the game in your mind?
2: Yeah, I think you hit on a lot of them with you know Patrick Mahomes, Caitlin Clark, but I look at it this way also. I think there needs to be villains at the same time in sports. And so like for me a guy like Travis Kelsey. Like, he comes across as unlikable sometimes, but people love him, people hate him, people have an opinion on him. And so I think, like, a guy like him is really good for football. He brought in a lot of Taylor Swift fans, but then other people hate Taylor Swift so much, they're going to hate Travis Kelsey. So, like, I think he, I think a guy like that is really good for the game as well, like, whether it's good or bad, but he also embraces it. You know, there's some people that can't embrace the hate. LeBron tried to do that when he went to Miami, couldn't embrace the hate, and he had to go back to Cleveland and become a fan favorite again. So I think that's actually really important when it comes to sports. Um, another guy I was thinking for college football, Deion Sanders. Another guy that is very polarizing. Some people love him, some people hate him, a lot of people relate to him. A lot of people say, Well, he's just doing this all for clout. But I think that is good for the game ultimately because it does bring eyeballs to the TVs. So, you know, those are the type of guys that came right to my mind besides the actual, you know, elite athletes on the court. Like you said, Caitlin Clark, Shohei Otani um you know victor wimbenyama like those people are so unique at what they do and their skills are so unique you know we haven't seen anyone shoot the threes that caitlin clark shoots and so for that like we are always going to watch that same with victor wimbenyama he's seven foot five we've never seen a guy that tall do what he does showy otani elite pitcher elite hitter we're going to watch that so if you're not going to be you know an elite guy an elite woman at your sport be polarizing so for me it's guys like travis kelsey it's guys like Deion Sanders. I think those guys are really good for all these type of games.
1: I don't I don't want a guy to be polarizing just to try to be polarizing. But I get what you're saying. You need a diversity of thought and, and a diversity of action. And but you the, need a landscape that, that feels like it's got some intrigue and interest to it. But, and,
2: but those guys back it up, though. Like, Travis Kelsey is an elite player off the field. And Deion was an elite player on the field. And now you liquidated what he did at Colorado. Yeah, they were 4-8 the end of the season, bad. But he brought back a program that was terrible. So, like, he, you can say what you want, but he's a good coach.
1: I used to get this all the time, and, and, and part of it goes back to you, you just hit on something. I started thinking about coaches when you talk about Deion Sanders. And so, you know, years and years ago, and I'm covering Bobby Knight as a beat reporter, and then I go to cover Jerry Tarkanian. and I can remember having a conversation with my dad about Tark, about how different Tark was as a coach. His approach was different. He recruited different kinds of players. He was often, you know, they called it second chance you with Tark, And he, he got, you know, described uh, by CBS, Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes called him, you know, Father Flanagan. And, um, you know, it, but my dad said something that was interesting. He said, you know, there's a place in college basketball for Tark because you don't want all the coaches in college basketball recruiting exactly the kind of pl- same kind of players you know, passing on all the same kinds of players, not offering, uh, not trying to find an angle, not trying to find, um, a, you know, a way to way to win. All the coaches are trying to win. But, I, but I, the methodology of all the coaches cannot be the same. Like, Bobby Knight is recruiting a certain kind of player that could play for him. Tark was recruiting a much different player. And part of it came from Jerry Tarkinian's background in that he had been a community college kid himself and, you know, had come up through the ranks in, and, uh, you know, recruited community college kids. He was looking for those second-chance kids because he knew them. He was a teammate with those guys. I, I often wonder with tremendous athletes, Barry Bonds, Dion Sanders, Joe Montana, Dan Marino, like tremendous athletes of yesteryear, I often wonder if they can relate to players. Can, you know, could Barry Bonds relate to a kid who was coming up through the minor leagues and needed some help in the cage hitting, could Barry Bonds get into the cage and teach that kid how to hit? And I think he struggled when he tried to be a batting instructor and he tried to be a coach, and and part of it was that Barry Bonds was like, just hit the ball. Like, what are you doing? And and I can remember having a conversation with Tony Gwynn and interviewing Tony Gwynn and talking about hitting with Tony Gwynn, and it blew my mind how in the weeds he was – about, you know, the the act of hitting and knowing how to coach and knowing how to teach it. And then we had uh, Bill Madlock. People may remember Bill Madlock. He was a career 300 hitter in the major leagues. We had him on the show one time. And I asked Bill Madlock, like, what was your approach? You get into the batter's box. You know, you're getting ready to hit. Are you looking for, you know, a certain pitch in a certain zone? You know, most hitters will tell you. They step into the batter box. They have an idea of what pitch they want. And what pitch they'll swing at uh, until they get a strike? You know, I want a fastball. I want a fastball that's, you know, I like a ball that's, uh, you know, on the in, in inside half of the plate, and that's what I'm sitting on and looking for. But Bill Madlock, he said I didn't do that. He said I just got in the box and I hit the ball when I saw it. And and but some guys can teach it and think it, and some guys can't. And what I'm getting at is, I think in in the NFL and Major League Baseball, in college sports certainly. You have a variety of approaches to teaching and coaching and playing. And it's what makes it so interesting to me that Chip Kelly is so different than, you know, a play caller like Will Stein at Oregon. And that, you know, you're going to have Ryan Gunderson call and plays at Oregon State. Yes, he coached alongside Chip Kelly for a couple years, but he also had some exposure to Mike Riley. How will those influences make Ryan Gunderson a play caller? And so to your point of Deion Sanders... Like I'm, you know, I I'm okay with people saying I don't like the shtick of Deion Sanders, or I don't, I'm not on board with you know uh, the talking and you can't back it up. You go out and you win, you know, three or four or five six games. Like or, I'm okay with people criticizing that, but I I love that there's a coach in major college football who has Deion Sanders' personal experience as a player, who's trying to in this world of NIL and transfer portal, implement what he knows and make it fit in a way that makes it work at Colorado. That's interesting to me. It's almost a sociology experiment to see, like, can that work? Never mind can he coach, because I don't even think it's about that for Deion Sanders. It's can he recruit and can the coaches who work for him – stand the heat and stand the pressure that he's going to put on him. That's interesting to me. That's a reality television show without it even needing cameras around and uh, you know, but it still has cameras around. But by the same virtue, we got Dan Lanning at Oregon. Okay, like you tell me if this works for major college football. Like Dan landing relatively young, still 37-year-old guy, not the youngest coach in college football right now, but he's got the backing of Nike. He has a whole different formula at Oregon with the backing of Nike, the backing of Division Street, uh, relatively inexperienced, hired a bunch of coaches who sort of skew towards being recruiters first. Tosh LaPoya's D coordinator is a recruiter. That guy is a big-time recruiter who is the D coordinator. Well, he's learning to be a defensive coach. Dan Lanning's learning to be a head coach. I think some of the mistakes we saw in Dan Lanning's first two seasons are directly related to him having talent that is better than maybe the experience of the coaching staff. And what I mean by that is, I think a few years from now, Dan Lanning's probably going to kick himself and go, gosh, I made mistakes in year one and year two that I would never have made now that I've been doing this a little while longer. And man, I didn't fully get everything I could get out of Bo Nix, and it's going to be on him and his staff. I think it's a really interesting dichotomy that is going on with that. Now, This is a spin off from what we were originally talking about. Like, because I think, you know, I think a lot of people are good for the game, but I would disagree with you a little bit. Like, Like, the Draymond Green thing has been bothering me. The Warriors are playing better. Dre seems to be taking it personally. He's using the Yusuf Nurkic thing as fuel. But I would rather be talking about, like, wow, the Warriors are playing a lot better. And let's figure out why. Instead of this spat going back and forth, and it really starts to detract. And I don't think it's good for the game that we're talking about Draymond Green and Yusuf Nurkic I think what would be better for Adam Silver's league is if we were talking about here comes the All-Star break that what's going well in his league right now and who are the faces of that effort
2: I agree with you because I don't think the Draymond thing is good either and I don't know like cuz it goes against what I just said but there is a difference between what Draymond and Nurk is doing and then what you know, Dion's doing off the field. Like they're both causing noise off the field. But when it comes to Dion, like I'm still intrigued and I want to watch it. Where Draymond Green and Nurk, I don't care about watching that next game. Like it do- it's not a big deal. I don't know what that would be, but for me, it is. There's a little bit of it where it's kind of the good versus evil type of thing. Like, go back, you talk about Tark and back in the 1990, I believe it was, Duke versus UNLV. Like, that was yep. that was the good versus evil. It was the it was the white guys at Duke, it was the black guys at UNLV, and that's what it was kind of hyped up to be. And I think in sports, that plays a lot into it. So, like, for a guy like me, like, like I said, Travis Kelsey, I don't like that guy. I think he is really annoying, and I don't want him off my screen. I'm cheering against him. Like, I'm going to cheer against that guy. You go back and you look, Conor McGregor uh, taking on um, –
3: Floyd, Floyd Mayweather, Mayweather yeah. And yeah, just
2: blanking his name. Like that was another one of those things. It was like, you know what, you're going to pick your side. I don't like Floyd Mayweather because there's stuff off to off to, or out of the ring. So I'm going to cheer for Conor McGregor, But I don't like his stuff out of the ring either. So it's one of those things, John. Where for me, good versus evil type of thing. I like to choose a side. Sports is all about choosing your side. Whatever, whatever it is, whatever you like, and you want to root for that team, whether it's your team or not, and it gives you a cheering cheering instance. So for me, it's like I want to have a cheering. Rooting interest in the game in the match, and that's what makes games really interesting. Where it's like Draymond and Nurk, I just don't care about those guys. But you talking about these other players that are out in the open, out in the media, talking about these things. I care about them for some reason. Maybe it's just because they're better. Maybe because Nurk and Draymond aren't great. But I don't know what it is.
1: You're hitting on something though, too. About you know there there is an element that back at the women's national championship game in college basketball last season, when it was Angel Reese against Caitlin Clark, there was a race element to it. There's a race element to Floyd Mayweather. Against Conor McGregor, there's a race element to what Coach Prime is doing at Colorado, because you know, there, you know, Coach Prime is a black head coach who's saying, "Hey, you know, uh, come play for someone who looks like you." And there's a race element to it, but I, I think it's okay to talk about that, and I think it's okay to acknowledge it. And I actually am looking at the players who are drawn to that at Colorado. It's not that different from Tark, who was looking to kids who were looking for a second chance. a play, There There was a place in Tark's heart for kids who had had troubles and could still really play. And they were looking for another opportunity, a second or third or a fourth chance in some cases. But there was a place in college basketball for him, and I hate that it became, at UNLV and Duke, it became, you know, oh, the white guys from Duke against, uh, you know, Tark and inner-city kids. And It shouldn't have been that way. It shouldn't have been framed that way. But I think too often it's like the movies where it's like, you know, here comes uh, Rocky uh, Balboa against, uh, you know, against uh, Mr. T, Clever Lang, and it becomes like this made-for-Hollywood, let's pit, you know, make it a battle of of the races. And it it really shouldn't be because when I look at, you know, major college football, I love that there are coaches out there who – say, look, I'm going to find an angle. I'm going to recruit a certain caliber of player. I, I know I'm in the Big Ten Conference. I've got to go after certain kids. But I, I hate that it becomes so much about, you know, people saying, well, you know, Deion Sanders is, is being racist in saying that he's going, you know, come play for a coach who looks like me. No, I think that's a real thing in talking to some athletes who say, look, you know, it's great that there's a blackhead coach who is saying it out loud. He's saying the quiet part out loud. I don't mind that a bit, and I think it makes it more interesting and makes it exciting, and I'm excited to see what he does in his second season. I'm not rooting against the guy. All right, coming up, Trent Bray, Oregon State football coach. What does he know now that he didn't know when he took the job? We'll talk to Trent Bray next. Well, Trent Bray has been uh, on the job now for a little bit of time. He's had a chance to get his feet underneath him. Had a signing day. Oregon State football coach Trent Bray is joining us. I got to ask you before we get into uh, the college stuff. Did you watch the Super Bowl? I did. Yep. Yeah. Tell me what happened to my 49ers.
4: <laughs> I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can answer that question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a tough one.
1: Do you, when you're watching a game like that, can you just watch it, or are you looking at um, what's the front? What's the, uh, you know, what 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 formation are they in? You know, uh, how are they disguising a coverage? You know, what are you looking at?
4: Yeah, it is, it is very hard to watch football and not think about those things. Yeah, I, I can't watch it as just a fan and, and see what happens. I'm always doing that type of stuff, absolutely.
1: And as a coach now, as a head coach, you're probably thinking about, you know, uh, a lot made of Kyle Shanahan and the overtime and knowing the rules. I mean, there's so many things that, like, I got to be honest with you. I was Googling the overtime rules when it went to <laughs> overtime. And, you don't, you as a coach, you don't have time to do that on the sideline.
4: No, no, you got to go in. And then, that was something we, we, I've, we've done with Coach Smith over the last six years. You know, we always talked about, you know, we call it FBI football intelligence. And we went through every week just all the different scenarios that you wouldn't even think of that happened throughout college football to prepare ourselves for those situations. So that's something I continue to do.
1: I love that. how's How did recruiting go for you in this first phase uh, as you see it?
4: I, I thought it went great as you know I thought our staff did a great job of identifying you know positions of need right now and in getting those out of the portal and then also looking at young guys with with some measurables that fit what we need at those positions and getting real good young guys that we can develop for the future.
1: The, you know it you always talk about the kind of kid you want at Oregon State or the kid you want in your culture can you can you kind of describe what those traits are?
4: you know it really it's self motivator um that's where it starts we want We want people that are hungry that are motivated by being successful and then then within that they need to be tough um tough minded and disciplined people and if we, if we can get a collection of those guys, we'll be successful
1: will you be able to not? pace up and down the sideline away from it all. They're going ex- they're going to expect you as a head coach to be kind of in the middle there. You're going to be okay with that next season.
4: Yeah, that's probably not going to happen. I'll I'll be all over the place and try to dodge the camera as much as I can. Yeah.
1: Right. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, and you're looking at, you know, I know you you like to watch a little bit on the on the screen, like the jumbo screen because you can see a little mm-hmm. bit better there. And, you know, mm-hmm. I always I always kind of wonder I even saw it in a little bit in the Super Bowl where you saw some of the players who, between plays, are looking up at replays to see what happened on a play.
4: Yeah, yeah, there's just, especially like interior stuff. You know, did a guy miss a gap when they're blitzing or something like that? You can just see better on the screen
1: sometimes. You were a, th- a three-sport kid in high school, Pullman High School in Washington, all-state honors, football. You played, uh, You played baseball and basketball. What did you get out of those other sports that, that uh, helped you,
4: even maybe even help you now. Oh, oh gosh, there, there's a ton of stuff, but I just think of the basic, you know, hand-eye coordination that I learned in, you know, basketball and baseball. Then, um, then just constantly teamwork and working as a team in in all the sports. There's a lot of, tra- uh, you know, things that translate from sport to sport. But as far as like a skill set, it, it was definitely the hand-eye coordination that I got from baseball and basketball that helped me be a better football player and use those skills.
1: You like uh, recruits who play other sports?
4: I do. I, I just think they're more well-rounded.
1: Yeah, I get, you get you know. There's such a it's youth sports has become such a business. We talk about this a lot on this show, and you know, I I uh, shake my head at some of the stuff that I see out there with people telling kids they have to specialize and you have to play something mm-hmm. year-round. And I think kids kids need a break. And I I think you talking about sort of those skill sets that you used in the other sports. And also, I think it gives kids a chance to be, you know, go be a leader on a baseball team, go be a leader on a basketball team. And do you go out and scout that? Like, if you're scouting a quarterback, linebacker, do you go? Do you like to go see them play another sport?
4: Yeah, I like, like I love watching guys go play basketball. I think that's a a great way to see a kid's athleticism. There's so many movements and, and quickness from lateral movement that you can see when they play basketball. I think it's a it's a great way to evaluate an athlete, especially skill positions and linebackers.
1: Trent Bray is the Oregon State head football coach. Tell me what you know now that maybe you didn't know when you took the job.
4: How little of football in, during the on a daily basis that I would do. You know, that's probably the least of my job. So that's that was a I kind of knew that, but I I've really figured it out since I've gotten the job.
1: Yeah, and I and I think sometimes that's not good, right? Like you got to be a good mm-hmm. delegator. And you got to take the. Some coaches like being the CEO, but you're more of a roll the sleeves up. You're going to want to get mm-hmm. in a drill, aren't you?
4: Yeah, yeah, and uh, <laughs> that's why I'm looking forward, and I kind of thought a lot about okay, how's practice going to look for me? Because I can't just stand there and you know twirl my whistle. You know, yeah. I got I got to be involved, and and yeah, so I'm a, I've thought about that a lot and find ways to to involve myself without without stepping on the coach's toes and letting them do their job at the same time.
1: Give me an idea, like, you know, you, you coached on staffs with a lot of other head coaches who had success. Mm-hmm. Um, you saw Dennis Erickson at, at Arizona State, of course. Um, you saw Mike Riley at Oregon State. Um, those guys, I never got a sense, are, were those guys walk around, twirl your whistle, guys, or w- was Riley jumping in drills? Was Erickson jumping in and, you know, in an offensive drill and, and teaching and coaching?
4: Yeah, the, they did. They would they would they would jump in mostly with the quarterbacks for those two, but uh, but they would get in there and, and coach and teach and and talk to players on the sidelines. So they they were pretty good about that.
1: You you got to have some benchmarks as spring approaches. That you know you're trying. Are you still in evaluation mode with guys, or because you've been on the staff, you know this team inside and out? Like, what are you trying to get out of the spring? Is it as we move towards March? Uh,
4: well, there'll be a lot of evaluation just because we got a lot of a lot of young guys that, that have been here for one or two years, but also you know we got 19 new guys that joined us this this winter, this off season. So there'll be a lot of new faces at the same time um, evaluation, but mostly the, I like the talent that's on the team, both guys that we brought in and guys that were here. It's okay. How do we get them to gel, become a team, learn how to play with each other, learn how to you know build that. Bond that that makes Oregon State such a great place over really from now until the season starts.
1: A lot of coaches will talk about wanting to get those young kids in early, and you know they'll miss they'll miss the end of high school really, and 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 uh, arrive in the spring. Where do you stand on that? The advantage of doing that, or what are those conversations like when you're having them with with young players?
4: I, I've always believed that if if a kid isn't realistically going to have a chance to play for you the next fall, whether it's your depth situation or, you know, I don't think it's worth bringing a kid in early. Um, I think if if it's a real that they have a chance to play, then I think it's a good thing because that extra spring, that physical development that happens in the winter, spring, and summer is good. But that's kind of my just thought on it.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I would kind of be with you because I think if you're not, if the kid's not going to play, let them be a kid and let them yeah. you know because there's a maturity element too that you got to I'm sure you evaluate that as well as you're talking to kids like if a kid's just not mature enough to come and make that jump you don't want them there anyway
4: Yeah because it can it can seem like a really long time like a just one season can seem like multiple years to a kid that came in early and then had to sit as a freshman
1: All right you you're you're, uh, you're in uh, you're talking about all this non-football stuff it it's probably things like you know uh i've talked to ADs and they say they're dealing more with the collective fundraising for the collective uh going to events they're having a harder time get getting to practices these days like you know they that's what they got in the job for so when you talk about those other things you're doing as a coach uh what mm-hmm. are we what don't we all know about the job of, of a head football coach in college uh, it's just
4: uh, you know it's like scheduling um you're scheduling practices um, you're, you're just doing those kind of administrative things. Um, you're managing coaches and players at the same time. Uh, just, just a lot of, a lot, a lot of stuff that's not X's and O's. Um, mostly organizational and then administrative. And then you're, you're working with the different, you know, groups to help to how, how can we make our players daily lives better? And so whether that's through what we can do for them through our administration, through, you know, uh, whatever that might be.
1: Now, when you, when you talk about this upcoming season, uh, uh, of course people are going to be interested to see what you can do in year one. And I know you don't want to lower expectations at all, but what, what are you thinking in year one? What kind of identity will this team have under Trent Bray?
4: Um, well, one, our, our expectations are high, and I want them to be high. I think our, our talent level um, of where we're at is as, is as good as it's been. Um, I think it's just going to be a, a bunch of new guys learning how to play together. And that's going to be the difference in our season, in my opinion, um, is how well those guys come together. Because we've been fortunate over the last couple of years, those guys have played together for multiple years. They, they built up that trust in each other. We're going to have to do that in a short amount of time. Um, but, I, but I feel great about the season. I think our identity, it, it's going to be blue collar, tough, smash mouth, physical football. Um, that's going to separate us from the rest of the teams that we're going to play.
1: Your J coordinator, uh, obviously Keith Hayward, uh guy you're familiar with. What did you like about Keith that made you say, i got to have that guy on my staff?
4: Just, I mean, super intelligent, um, knows ball, has coached at different levels in defense, in the secondary, at linebacker. Um, I've known him forever. We've clinic, clinic together in the past. We just see things the same way. Um, but he's also going to bring things from all the places he's been, the NFL, different places in the country that'll help add new wrinkles to what we do and make us better.
1: How much is trust needed on a coaching staff like that? And I, I have never been in a position where I have to rely on, you know, a staff of eight or 12 or 15 people and have it, you know, come together and, you know, you want your vision to you know to live in those guys but you also have to trust them a little bit as as you're talking like how much is trust important in a coaching staff
4: I think it's I think it's huge and it might be the most important especially nowadays the way college football is just the way the world is now everyone's an independent contractor everyone's out for themselves being able to have people that you know and trust that you know are gonna do their job and do it the way that we want it done I I think that's huge
1: all right Uh, Give me, a, give me a little bit of personality of Trent Bray. When you're growing up, did you collect football cards? Did you play video games? Did you? What did Trent Bray do?
4: <laughs> I, I spent a lot of time outside, um, you know, playing with the other kids in the neighborhood, whether it be baseball, basketball, football, tackle football out in the yard. I, I spent a lot of time outside. I never was a big video game guy or anything inside. I was always doing something outside.
1: You guys were playing tackle when the yard duty was said you couldn't, you had to play two hand touch. Were you that <laughs> yeah. kid? Yeah, I was that kid yeah. too. I, and when the yard duty turned her back, her name was Shirley on, at my elementary school. When Shirley turned her back, we were playing tackle. When she turned back around, it was two hand touch. So we had to, to kind of alternate that. Uh, Trent Bray, hey, I wish you the best. Uh, I'm excited to see what you guys are going to do. Excited for Spring Bowl. Do you have dates set for spring ball? When when will you go? I know Jonathan liked to have it early. Will you stick to that earlier yeah. schedule, or what are you going to do?
4: Yeah, we're going to start March 5th, and then you know, go to two weeks on, give my a break for finals and spring break, and then come back and do three weeks.
1: Is there a reason you like doing it that way?
4: Yes, the the biggest – well, a couple of reasons. One, I, I think it's great to break up spring ball, because if you – just a month straight, and I've done that with other staffs with no game, with nothing – to really to look forward to it can become monotonous and the last couple practices are so really become unproductive yeah. and so breaking it up allows us as coaches to go back and review the first two weeks okay what do we like what do we need to clean up you know do we want to continue to move forward in the installer hey we got to slow down um, and then it also gives the kids a break and I found when they come back they're re-energized and those last you know nine practices are just a lot better.
1: And also too, I, I've talked to players who go into a spring and they'll go, gosh, I was pressing, I was trying to impress the coaches. I didn't play my, best. it gives the players a chance to kind of step back and go, Hey, uh, I need a reset here and, and they can come back mm-hmm. after a break and, and, you know, maybe try to be a little more comfortable in front of you.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And if it, you know, kid rolls his ankle or something, he's not out the rest of spring. He gets a lot of time to come back. So I think there's a lot of positives to it.
1: All right, coach, uh, I appreciate you giving us your time. Look forward to seeing what you guys look like. I appreciate it. All right. Trent Bray, there he goes, Oregon State football coach. I wanted to get him on. I want to talk to Trent Bray. I want to get to know Trent Bray. I want you to get to know Trent Bray, and I want Trent Bray to get more comfortable talking to you and that's why i'm bringing him on and i'm going to keep bringing him on and we're going to find out what who is trent bray and what is he about and i think sometimes there are there are coaches especially first time coaches who have not been in this kind of setting before and it's not the most comfortable place for him but i'll give him credit like you know i reached out about a week ago and i said i'd like to get you on and bang and here he is trent bray on the show Good stuff with him. Scott Ruick, the Oregon State women's coach, is coming up at 4 o'clock. He had a really – he's having a hell of a week, okay? I don't want to spoil it, but he is having a hell of a week in a good way. Like, you want to hear an uplifting story about a dad and a college basketball coach, and by the way, they're playing two games against ranked opponents Friday night and Sunday in Corvallis. Scott ruick has got a story to tell you. Uh, later in the show, Kenny Vance makes his triumphant return to these radio waves. He is going to talk some NBA with us. Longtime radio personality, sports media personality in the state and in the region. Kenny Vance coming up at the 5 o'clock hour. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Is it fair? Is it fair that at the beginning of Blazer games, Chauncey Billups is getting booed? Larry on Twitter says every time Chauncey gets his name announced, he's booed. No public comments from the Blazers organization uh, on that, but Larry says he finds it telling. Why is Chauncey Billups getting booed? Isn't the booing for the franchise? Isn't the booing for Jody Allen's ownership or trusteeship or whatever we want to call the ship? That is sinking at one center court. Isn't that what the booze are for? And is Chauncey has Chauncey become the face of it? Is he the guy? Is he the scapegoat? Is he the guy getting blamed? Like, I, I actually think you could take Phil Jackson at his best. Red Arbuck Dr. James Naismith. You could take John Wooden at his prime. Pete Newell. You could take, uh, you know... Dr. Jack Ramsey at his best, create the best coaching staff in NBA history, Coach K as a consultant, P.J. Carlissimo down the bench, and at the end of it, um, Blazers wouldn't be a lot better. Roster's broken. Are they booing Chauncey, and is it fair?
2: I think they are definitely booing Chauncey, but... I also think it's fair as well. I think it's I think it's both reasons, John. I think you're right that they're booing the organization, but I think they're also booing Chauncey because there were... Now, there weren't high expectations, but there were at least expectations that there would be signs of growth, and there haven't been the signs of growth that I think a lot of fans wanted. Like, Scoot Henderson started out really bad. He's been playing better as of late, but now there's a lot of talk that he may not be the superstar that everybody sold him to be. And so I think for that, like... They blame Chauncey a little bit. They blame Joe Cronin a little bit. And they blame Jody Allen and Burt Cold a lot. And so I think when you they announce Chauncey Billups, that's the one guy they're going to announce. They're not going to show Jody Allen or Burt Cold or Joe Cronin on the big screen, but they're going to announce Chauncey Billups' name every single night. And so I think it is that's the time that they're going to boo. And they're going to boo it for the franchise. They're going to boo it for the coach. I think it's a little both. You know, I, I think it's probably. But both. I don't
1: think it's deserved. I, I I actually, like, I don't think it matters who coaches this team. Like, is he a good coach? Is he a bad coach? I don't know. But
2: isn't he kind of? He's the last like, re, like he still has that stench of Neil O'Shea. Like he's the last thing that Neil O'Shea brought here. Uh, yes, and so yes. I, I think that like it all plays into it because I agree with you. No coach can coach this roster to a very good record. But I think it's the stench of Neil O'Shea still, and then it's kind of hey, this guy represents the organization. We can right. boo him.
1: All right. Yeah. It uh, that's what I'm getting at. Is it fair that fans are booing Chauncey Billups? And I'm not saying stop booing him because if the, if you if there's nobody else to boo and you want to send a message to the franchise that you're not okay with what's going on, have at it. Like you know, have at it. It's your uh, you know. I'm not one of these people that says you can't go to a game and boo. You know, if the product's bad, if the organization is lost, put your uh, cup your hands around your mouth and let them have it. And and you know, I think that's what's going on more than anything. And I think if they put. You know, if the pregame introductions were not for players, if they were instead, you know, uh, here's here's uh, Jody Allen, the trustee, you know, starting lineup, lineup tonight, tonight, Jody, Jody Allen, oh, and, and she came running out, and it would be like, boo, you know, and Bla- Blazer fans would go bananas in, in a way that would be more effusive than the Chauncey Billups boos. Burt Cold would get the same reaction. Joe Cronin would get booed too, I think, and not fairly so. I think Joe Cronin is in – the most empathetic position of them all. Joe Cronin was the video guy promoted through the organization, became a scout, interned to GM. He was just the next guy in line. And when Neil Olshay's bad act was pushed out of the franchise, Bert looked around and said, who can, who's gonna, who can I control? I want to be the GM. And who is it here that I could have answer the phones and take the calls and bring the deals to me? It's Joe Cronin. And so it's not Joe Cronin's fault. People blaming Joe Cronin, ripping on Joe Cronin. Like, go look at Joe Cronin and compare him to Neil Olshay. I mean, completely different personalities, completely different people. We'll talk more about it with Kenny Vance coming up in the, in the 5 o'clock hour. But I actually think, like, it's okay to boo Chauncey, but let's be clear what it's about. You're booing the organization. You're booing Jody Allen. You're booing Burt Cold. You're booing the ghost of Neil Olshay. You're booing what happened with Damian Lillard. You're booing Chauncey to a certain extent because he is, you know, left over. He's a remnant from the Olshay era. And that's it. That's what you're booing. You're booing because... This isn't what you signed up for as a Blazer fan. Not You're not booing him because, hey, you know, we should have two more wins in the win column. Um, I, I, I actually don't think, you know, whatever difference Phil Jackson would make with this roster would be, you know, just be a marginal difference. That brings us to our big splash. It's the one thing that you need to know.
5: This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The Big Splash! Brought
4: to you by Killer Burger, home of the peanut butter pickle bacon burger and voted best burger five years in a row. Killer Burger, the burgers your mama warned you about.
1: Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred said today that he plans to step down from the job upon the expiration of his contract in January of 2029. Manfred's 65. He had a five-year contract extension that was approved by the owners last July. He has now been on the job 10 years. This will be his 10th season. He said, quote, you can only have so much fun in one lifetime. He's been open with the owners about the fact that this will be his last term. He is a lawyer by trade who worked with Major League Baseball since 1987, beginning as outside counsel, then as a chief negotiator in labor matters and then he took over for Bud Selig, who spent 18 years as commissioner. Unpack that last couple of sentences a little bit. Lawyer, worked with MLB, outside counsel, then as the negotiator for labor manners. This is a lawyer who became appointed as Major League Baseball commissioner because the owner said that guy did good by us when it came to our labor deal. Rob Manfred's tenure will in part be defined by his handling of the Astros cheating scandal, if you ask some. Others by the lockout of uh, 21 and 22 that pushed the game to the, uh, to the edge of a uh, significant work stoppage. But ultimately, I think it'll be defined by what happens in the next three or four years under his tenure. Baseball is facing uh, a crisis with attendance uh, it has seemingly come, come through an era of drug uh, PEDs and, and drug issues and now faces expansion and what whatever comes next for Major League Baseball. I think he's at a really interesting time for Rob Manfred. But he's basically saying, this is my swan song. It'll be really interesting to see what he does when he's not trying to uh, negotiate for another deal and just acting as the commissioner. Our guest, Scott Ruick, he is the basketball coach, Oregon State women's basketball coach. Obviously, they have big games uh, tomorrow, 7 o'clock, UCLA at Oregon State. Um, On Sunday, USC at Oregon State, two ranked teams. Oregon State now 11th in the AP poll, playing number nine UCLA tomorrow, number 10 USC on Sunday. It's a big weekend, but Scott Ruick, let's start with golf. Um, Your son has, uh, he's on fire right now he played in the Genesis Collegiate Showcase on Monday at the Riviera Country Club and he won the damn thing. You have to be really proud.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm just so happy for him. I mean we are absolutely proud of the person he is and how he how he operates and how hard he works. Um you know, but that day was, was a, a Hall of Fame day. It couldn't have been a more perfect day. I'm so thankful it was on a Monday so Carrie and I could both be there. And um, to watch him, you know, step into the biggest opportunity that he's had to this point in his golf career and to just carry himself so well, so confidently, and then to watch him, you know, finish this thing on a play, two playoff holes and to make the putt, you know, to realize uh, maybe something that was even beyond the dream, you know, to realize the dream was was just uh overwhelming i mean it it was just the coolest day and so we couldn't be more more happy for him
1: for people who don't know this collegiate showcase it's it's really cool it's part of the genesis uh tournament that's going on at riviera and you know he will get an exemption now and he'll get to play in july of 2024 in the scottish open you're going to scotland
0: we're going to scotland you you know it
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome
0: it's yeah, so he was interviewed afterwards, and one of the questions was, "Cole, how does it feel to be making your PGA Tour debut on in Scotland? You know, at the Scottish Open?" And, <laughs> and we all, Carrie and I and Cole, we all just kind of, you know, I mean, that, yeah. that's just that statement. I mean, just was was crazy. So we just we're so happy for him. It's So he just. He worked so hard. He deserves, you know. He deserves it. And he's been grinding, and so it was. It was incredible. And so, a seven-foot putt, you know, with that on the line on the second playoff hole, and he he rolled it right in the heart.
1: What are you thinking when Cole Ruick is lining up on that seven-foot put, foot putt for a birdie? You know, if he makes it, he's winning the event. It's great for him. But as a parent, you're watching that. What are you thinking about?
0: Well, all day long, I was at peace. Um, you know, and, and Kerry was too. I mean, on the inside, you want it so bad, you know, for him. He's just praying that this is the day, you know, that this happens where, you know, everything will be different. I mean, he'll just see himself as we see him, as he is, like, just, you can do this. You can be the guy, um, you know, and and so and that's what golf does to you, and that's what competition does to you. It challenges you in that way, you know, and so on the inside, I'm just, I, I mean, that I kind of prayed, you know, going down that last fairway, he's, he's in the fairway on hole number 11 the second playoff hole and i'm just like i said uh, lord let this be the day you know that this happens for him and and um and so i was just at peace with whatever happened because certainly we've come up short many times golf is a lot of failure and a lot of coming up short and a lot of disappointment and then when you get those big moments there's nothing better and and so it was emotional carrie was in tears i was i was emotional i just couldn't wait to get out there and give him a hug you know and so uh, you just you know, you're rolling with whatever happens. Is but he
1: is he getting I'm, to rub shoulders with the pros who are out there? I mean, those guys are all on the course today and through the weekend. And you know, is he getting that FaceTime with those guys?
0: So. So a great connection we have is we're good friends with Michael Greller, who is Jordan Spieth's caddy. And I got to coach his his sister, Katie, at George Fox, in my first five years of coaching. who became an amazing, one of the best leaders I've ever coached. And so the Greller family and our family have been tight forever. And, and Michael was out there, and he was with us the last nine holes plus the playoffs. And so when the event ended, we got up to the clubhouse, and this was Monday morning, and so all the pros had come over from the Waste Management in Phoenix, Phoenix Open, and had been started practicing. So we saw Rory on the tee box and then up on the practice screen, and then we saw, you know, I mean, you name it. Uh, it was Scotty Scheffler, Jordan Speed, Ricky Fowler, and so on. And so Michael took Cole around and introduced him to all of his favorite guys. And the and Coles had the opportunity to meet Jordan before – um, but this was different. And, you know, Scotty Scheffler won this event several years ago. And here you're, Cole's getting to meet the guy who, who won this, who's now the number one player in the world, you know, immediately after the tournament. And then just to add on to all that um, was the following morning. And this is Tiger Woods's tournament. Tiger wasn't out there that day. But the next morning, Michael sent a video um, from a practice round, and, and it was Tiger congratulating Cole <laughs> <That is laughs> and so said, cool. you know, congratulations. Can't wait to see you out here.
1: Next July July eleventh through the fourteenth Scottish Open uh, uh, coming up, so that will be amazing um yeah, yeah does that rule him out for the bFT Foundation celebrity golf tournament? We'll have to find out. maybe we'll have to schedule around that and get Cole Ruick on the course again <laughs>
0: might have on <find> another date <laughs> yeah uh really we had, a, like, we had a great time. How
1: did he get started in golf like were, are you a golfer is Kerry a golfer how How do you get interested? I love
0: it. I love it. Um, you know, my dad kinda of played everything. Golf wasn't his number one, but he put a club in my hand when I was a little kid and my grandpa Jameson, my mom's dad, uh, was a member at Rose City in Portland forever and so it was Grandpa Jay's favorite game and he taught me and I uh, I loved him and he loved golf and so I loved golf too and I just um it's actually the only thing I do right handed because my grandpa taught me on his clubs and and so, um because I I just love what that game does to you. I love how hard it is. I love what it does to your mind. I love that you have to conquer yourself to have a chance. And um, so I've loved it forever. And so the second Cole was, was uh – uh you know we started playing cats, i'm like this guy has great hand eye he's got great mm-hmm. touch we've got to put a club in his hand because you're going to have a great short game and and he just fell in love with it he loves numbers and he has the personality made for the game so it was just a natural fit and it's always been his number one and so we started young
1: yeah i mean and this is just the second time that a mountain west conference golfer has won the event um uh you know scott you got to be really proud of Cole, obviously, and you know, and everything he's been through. That a lot of parents listening to this are balancing youth sports and trying to keep it fun. We talk about this a lot, like trying to keep your kids want to come back. How did you keep golf fun for Cole?
0: I never one day asked him other than to play with me. Um, if you want to go, if you want to come, um, I've never asked him to go play. He he just. That was what he did, and he drove it, and so we supported what he loved and what he wanted. By chance, it's also what I love. Um, you know, and I just always have seen that. It's kind of like a, a silver lining in it. Um, but I, I had some real candid conversations. I said, I, I want you, even though you know I love this game and I love watching you compete in it, I never want you to play this game for me, ever. I said, I, it won't, I won't change one ounce what I ca- how much I love you or care about you you know, if you were to say, I never want to play golf again, you know, and so it is really, it's his game, and we have supported him the best we can in it, and I think that's the key. It was never
1: about us. love that. That's great advice. Scott Ruick is with us, Oregon State women's basketball coach. You guys are getting a little love, not a lot of love. They uh, have moved you up to number 11 in the rankings. You'll get uh, number 9 UCLA tomorrow, number 10 USC on Sunday, both at Gill Coliseum for people who want to see great basketball be a great opportunity, especially to bring your kids to see the Beavers tomorrow night, 7 o'clock and Sunday at noon. Um, Reagan Beers was on the show with us. What a great kid. What a great story. She didn't even know when she came on air that she was the player of the week, and it was like hours after it had been announced, and she tried to correct me. I said, two-time Pac-12 player of the week, and she said, no, 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 I think it's only one. I go, ah... I, you know, you just won it. Like, and she was like, "Oh, wow!" Like, that says a lot about her that she, like, she's not even tuned into that.
0: She's incredible, and that's that sums up our team. I, I, this team has a, a kind of a throwback humility that, I mean, I'm just having the time of my life. I just want you to know that. Um, the the Cole situation was an added bonus. <laughs> yeah. But I have been in heaven with this team this year. Uh, and they are an absolute joy to work with every day. And it is that. It's their humility. Uh, they love the game. They love each other. They love competing. Um, and they love finding a ways to win. And they love people, so they love inspiring people with the way that they perform. And they take pride in that. And they've been incredibly coachable every day they want to be coached and you know that's rare that's (laughs) it's hard to want to be coached and and so they want to look at their mistakes and they want to fix them and now they're holding each other accountable they've kind of developed that trust in each other to to really kind of get on each other with when there's mistakes made and that means that everything is always advancing forward And it comes out of that humility, and it comes out of great leadership. And you look at Ray and what she brings to the program every day, not only, you know, one of the best centers in the country or forward, whatever you want to call her, um, you know, but she – um, just has this joy and this presence that oozes out of her that 's infectious that just makes every room better and you heard that in, in that, that humility you know on your show the other day and that 's just who she is every day and so just that that amazing star quality person that puts other people first all the time
1: when, you know, when I see these two games coming up tomorrow and sunday. Um... I got to think your team is looking at this as a great opportunity. Like, there might be some teams that look at it and go, ooh, these are going to be two tough games. But, but I heard in her voice opportunity, you know, and uh, you know, wow, what an opportunity to play UCLA and USC. When you, What do you see with UCLA? Let's start with them tomorrow night uh, on film when you look at them. Yeah, and I like that word, and we use that word
0: a lot. You know, we've created a great opportunity for a big game, and, and here comes another ranked opponent. You know, we'll have four straight here, and um, so UCLA has has some of the best. It's probably the best guard trio in the country um, on the perimeter, and then they they got the number one recruit from a year ago. Now a sophomore in Lauren Betts, who was number one. Ray was number three ranked, and they're both from the Denver area, and so they've been you know a rival for forever uh, since they have started playing the game, and and um, and so UCLA they they got her to transfer from Stanford last year, and and so she is you know the presence on the inside, and so it's just a really good team that we were not quite good enough to beat the first time around. We made too many mistakes. And so uh, we're excited for that challenge. Can we correct some of those errors that we made the first time against a team that has weapons at every position and plays so fast and so hard as well. And so it's it's just going to be a great battle.
1: Yeah. And you know, it's, we say like we being media, we'll always say things like, you know, you got your team playing their best basketball at the right time of the year. I, do you think in those terms or are you more focused in uh, the flow of the week, the flow of this game? Are you looking, you know, at at it as a 3-month thing or how wide is your vision on on a season?
0: Yeah, I it's a good question. I I mean, <clears throat> the flip of that is what um okay, let's not play good yet. <laughs> right. Um you know, I I mean, what is that? So so I always think A team that stays connected, always protect that first. A team that stays connected and is enjoying each other, enjoying the process, enjoying us, even in a losing season. I would say we played our best basketball last year at the end. I mean, we beat Arizona on Senior Day and then went and beat FC at the Paco Tournament. We won four games in conference last year. I mean, from the outside, that would have been a miserable year. But I would say, no, we came up short, but we had fun all the way through and we played our best at the end. So that's my goal is just to keep adding a layer, you know, a layer, another layer, another layer. There's no way this team, this year, as as good as the stretch has been and and we've played, we're not close to what we're capable of. We still have so much more to go. And so keeping our eyes focused on that, these little things, let's not get satisfied because we won five games. Let's, Let's look at those games and go, man, yeah, we could have been even better. And so that's where our focus is.
1: Yeah, you guys are having fun, and I I think people who want to get out and see good basketball, good college basketball, uh, you know, are all kind of looking towards the Portland Regional. I just can't help but think that this lines up for you guys, that it's an opportunity if you take care of business, you know, to end up in Portland and end up with, you know, a a relatively uh, friendly crowd in front of you. And, you know, are, are you guys talking about that yet?
0: No. Um, But yesterday, former coach and and legend Aki Hill was at practice and she threw it out. (laughs) So it has been mentioned. I have not mentioned it, but Aki Hill said, I dream of the Portland Regional, you know, for you guys. And and so, okay, it's been verbalized, you know, and and maybe the team has, but we have not talked about that. Um, You know, we've have plenty of other things to be talking about. And, um, you know, but uh, yeah, that would be. Uh, I mean, that's dreamy. What you just mentioned right there, that would be dreamy. you know. And so right now, um, our goal is to play in a way that we could host the first two rounds of the tournament. And you know, I think if you get to 20 wins, you kind of figure you're in it. Now let's figure out how to position ourselves. And the only way this is possible, possession by possession. As cliche as it is, it's the truth. It's just we've got to be better this possession than that team and keep doing that.
1: It's interesting because I think, you know, the same principles apply to life, like take care of the, you know, the 20 square feet around you and, you know, every day and and that and the rest of it kind of takes care of itself. And I am looking um, at the rankings. You're 11th. You you moved up six spots. Obviously, the people voting said, oh, look what Oregon State's doing. You know, they're beating everybody. They're going on the road and winning. They're winning at home. And and it's been remarkable. I know that stuff doesn't matter kind of to your team. You know, you can't control who votes for you, but... The overall perception of the program is that Oregon State women's basketball is is good and talented, and, and that's not bad, is it?
0: No, and actually I think it, in this day and age, perception is important. Um, I think that perception leaks into the room uh, with the committee, even at the end, and um, some of those narratives are are very important in our sport and so yeah, so we, we, we would love to continue to capitalize on that, and um, thank you for doing your part, but you know getting our players out there so people get to know these people and and just what amazing humans that they are that are competing and, and pouring their hearts out on the floor in front of them Um, those types of things I think do in this day and age matter but that's also uh, right on brand I mean to impact as many people positively as we can through this game I mean that's that's been the the mantra of this program since day one
1: been a hell of a week for the Ruick family Cole uh, (laughs) Ruick winning that exemption for the Scottish Open as he wins the uh, Genesis Collegiate Showcase on Monday Scott ruick has got basketball games on Friday and Sunday anything else going on in your household spelling bee anything? (laughs)
0: <laughs> um, uh, my daughter Kate plays at Corvallis she's the starting point guard there and Corvallis is right now in first place in their league and has a huge game at Silverton tomorrow night See? and they're 12-1 they're or 13-1 and and, uh, in league anyway and, and I think they're ranked 5th or 6th in state uh, that's how the OSA ranking works and then my younger daughter, Macy, our, six, our sixth grader, is up um, at a competition for her Zion Lutheran school, and she just had a dance performance this morning and crushed it. I just watched the video before, <laughs> um, before our conversation here, and, and so uh, it's, been a, it's been a great stretch, and I uh, feel real blessed.
1: So when you're at a, your kid's basketball game or dance competition, and do people look to you for analysis, or can you, are you allowed to be a parent in, the, in those moments? Uh,
0: uh, I'm I'm allowed to be a parent. That's that's the beauty of Corvallis. People protect you, and <laughs> and so it's it's a great, it's a great place to do what we do.
1: Scott Ruick, thank you. Uh, keep this week going. Don't bet against the Ruicks this week. That's the lesson we're learning.
0: <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. It's always a pleasure, John.
1: Thank you. Do not bet against the Ruicks. They are on a roll this week. Uh, Cole winning the event, and uh, of course Scott Ruick and his team. Moving towards a Portland regional. I will not be surprised to see the Beavers in that region. I will not be surprised to see Iowa and Caitlin Clark in that region as well. Leave it here. You got the bald faced truth. Thanks to Oregon State football coach Trent Bray for joining us and uh, Oregon State women's basketball coach Scott Ruick for joining us. A little heavy on the uh, Beaver presence today. Duck fan should be mad at me. Should be saying, Where's Dan Lanning? Where's Kelly Graves? Where's Dana Altman. Uh, all those guests make it on the show, but yeah, a little heavy on the Beavers today. We'll talk NBA with Kenny Vance in the 5 o'clock hour. We're going to play Punch It Audio. Here we go. Here
6: we go.
4: We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling.
1: Spencer McLaughlin hosts a Oregon Ducks football podcast called Locked on the Ducks. He talked on yesterday's show about the battle between Ohio State and Oregon in the Big Ten. Punch it. And everywhere you look, it's,
0: you know, kind of Oregon 2, Ohio State 1 in the Big Ten. I think it's more like 1A, 1B. You can put them in whatever order you'd like, but I think something you have to discuss is how does Oregon not have at least a little bit of an advantage? Because when they play in the regular season, they play in Eugene at Austin Stadium, and I think that's, a pretty notable edge there and i think oregon schedule is uh is pretty solid i think it's you know mildly more difficult than it could have been because you play ohio state and michigan but you miss penn state you miss usc you know washington and michigan both i think are pullback teams from last year so i think the schedule works out i think the team is there and uh, and they just got to go execute on the field
1: the team's there the schedule works out question is Will Oregon get quarterback play from Dylan Gabriel or whoever starts a quarterback that will put them in position to beat a team like Ohio State? Quarterback-centric game. You're going to need great play there. I also have questions about what Dan Lanning will be like in year three. Can he take another step forward as a head coach? He should. Seems to be paying attention, saying the right things. Does he learn from his mistakes? Because these are going to be big stakes games. And And if we're being real, Oregon's performance in big state games has not been impressive. Lost twice to Washington last season. Lost to Oregon State two seasons ago when it counted. People are going to talk about these things until Dan Lanning beats Michigan. Until he beats Ohio State. Until he beats a Penn State. Until he wins a playoff game. People are going to say those things. And I think they're fair criticisms until we get to that point. Bill platchkey is the columnist at the LA Times been critical of chip kelly departing to ohio state here's platchkey punch it
4: it was so it was such a such a shameful act by him
5: what why why did he leave at the end of the season why did he wait till now he left the program bereft of everything he didn't he didn't want to deal with nil he didn't want to deal with recruiting and he stays in college football and he takes a demotion to go to a team in the same conference it makes him look terrible it makes ucla look terrible they, they quickly hired to sean foster but they don't have they don't have you know the, the NIL money's not there the recruiting's not there their program is, is in tatters they got to rebuild from the ground up and enter the Big 10 no shame on Chip Kelly I just I just thought what he the act he did was just a bore and he was I'm so mad at him
1: I like Bill platchkey but I don't like this take from Bill platchkey We're in an era where players are being told do what's best for yourself coaches are being told hey I'm doing what's best for myself Schools are saying to each other, we have to do what's best for ourselves. Why did Chip Kelly wait? Well, he didn't have an offer. Bill O'Brien wasn't gone. Ohio State didn't have a position available. Chip Kelly was out interviewing, trying to get NFL jobs, and he left as soon as he got a job that was palatable to him. I think that's why he left so late. Does it make it convenient for UCLA? Hell no. No more convenient than your starting quarterback getting in the portal. No more convenient than when UCLA and USC jumped in the portal and went to the Big Ten. Just saying. Plachki was out front right then saying, this is the new world of college football. you got to get with it. Well, welcome to the new world of college football. UCLA didn't do enough to lock Chip Kelly down, didn't do enough in the NIL space, and frankly might be better off because of it if you're looking for a silver lining. Ryan Gunderson, he is the offensive coordinator at Oregon State. What are they going to look like on offense? Here's Gundy, punch it. I
6: think we've all seen what Oregon State can be uh, in the past 25 years. It's been a lot of really good football. I think with the right guys, the right players uh, playing confidently, we can score a lot of points. And You'll see an offense that is going to change paces. We'll go fast, we'll go slow, we'll try to keep defenses on their toes and challenge them learning the offense, but having confidence in the offense. Um, So I think the the next step is that. uh, And that's as simple as just getting better each day and and learning it and becoming more confident each day. We're going to make it fun. Make it exciting. Not going to hold anything back. We're going to throw all the punches and and see where the chips fall. But we're going to leave it all out on the field. It'll be a lot of
1: fun. Leave it all out on the field, says Gundy. I think uh, it's it's fun to hear stuff like that and uh, see and wonder what Oregon State's going to look like, but we're not really going to know what Oregon State is going to be on offense until we see them on offense next season. Mamani Jones says he was surprised to see Doc Rivers get another coaching job. Punch it.
4: His team's get into the place of not being good enough, not getting over the top, <laughs> but part of why that winds up happening and why I'm surprised they brought him into this situation them dudes get tired of him. Like, when, like in this new run of players doing podcasts, when Doc first got that job, it was funny to watch all these cats that are now in their early 40s and see their eyes roll, The ones who played for him uh, and how they felt about the idea of him getting a job. And that's why it's so crazy to me that he keeps getting another one because we both know this, man. Players decide when coaches are done. And I don't mean that from a coach killer standpoint. Yeah. Once the players are done with you, you are done. There's no turning this around. There's no bringing it back. Once the players have had enough, you're going to be out of there.
1: Yeah, look, uh, I'm not going to – the league is a league of retreads. The NFL is a league of retreads. The NBA thought that – you know, the Milwaukee Bucks thought that bringing Doc Rivers back was a good idea. Sometimes these things work out. Sometimes they don't. Sample size has been small, but so far doesn't look like a great move by the Milwaukee Bucks. Tiger Woods says he's having a lot of fun. He's at his own golf tournament, the Genesis Open at the Riviera Golf Course, where Tiger Woods is currently sitting at one over. Here he is. Punch it.
2: Yeah, my my ankle doesn't hurt anymore um, because you no know, the bones aren't rubbing anymore. But then again, it's different than other parts of my body have to take the brunt of it. Just like my my back is fused. And so other parts of my body have taken the brunt over that. And have I have you know, two different body parts that are, are now fused. Um, yeah, the other, other parts of the body have to adapt. And as far as the, the love, the love, I still love competing. I love playing. I love being a part of the game of golf. Um, this is a game of, of a lifetime. And I don't ever want to stop playing.
1: Tiger Woods had no three putts in his opening round. But he only made two putts outside of seven feet all day. Um you know it's really where he wasn't great. 5 birdies, 6 bogeys, 1 over 72. He um, he's got to come out and talk. It's his event, right? And certainly uh, his new partnership with Taylor TaylorMade and the Sun Day Red campaign uh having him try to be more visible here but uh felt indifferent this opening round. Never really got it going and uh we'll see what he has for the rest of this tournament. Caitlin Clark She's on the cusp of history trying to become the leading all time scorer in women's NCAA basketball history. Punch it.
0: I told you when you break the record, will they stop the game? Will they recognize you? Do you know anything about that?
7: I don't know, honestly. I hope they don't stop the game, though. <laughs> we can't be wasting timeouts on that. Come on now.
1: <laughs> Caitlin Clark in Iowa. There's part of this story that um is Charming, and there's part of this story that I think Iowa and its coaching staff and Caitlin Clark are threatening to hit an exhaustion point. Like, I love the story. I think she's great for the game. I said it off the top of the show. I also think the act of her coach and sort of the Iowa story has an exhaustion point. I will not be surprised if they arrive at the end of the season with a target on their chest. Caitlin Clark set to make history tonight. Has she got it yet? She's chasing uh, Washington Husky. Kelsey Plum has the all-time scoring record. Tonight's going to be the night. Does she have the record yet? Steven, update? Uh, No, game tips off at 5 o'clock. 5 o'clock. Okay, so here we go. So we're we're 28 minutes away. Let's track that. When she breaks the record, break in.
2: I believe it's a Peacock uh, exclusive, too.
1: Ooh, all over it. It is. FUBU TV's got it. And you know it's good because it's on FUBU. All right, moving on. Kansas City Police Chief Stacy Graves giving us an update on the terrible shooting at the Kansas City Chief's parade and rally. Punch it.
3: First and foremost, I want to stress that preliminary investigative findings have shown there was no nexus to terrorism or homegrown violent extremism. This appeared to be a dispute between several people that ended in gunfire. During the overnight hours, we learned there are 23 victims of yesterday's shooting. One of our victims, Elizabeth Galvin, 43 years old, died. We are still learning about her, but know that she is beloved by many. To her friends and family, we are with you, and we are working tirelessly investigate her murder. The 22 victims age range between 8 years old and 47 years old. At least half of our victims are under the age of 16. As mentioned yesterday, we have subjects detained, two of which are juveniles. We are working to determine the involvement of others and it should be noted we have recovered several firearms
1: several firearms this is sad stuff shouldn't be happening bothers me that it happened at a parade bothers me that it happened at a sporting event bothers me that children were among those who were shot and uh, that families uh, now have to think about going to parades I get it I get why the police chief is talking about terrorism and saying there's no connection to terrorism but I wrote it today at johnconzano.com. I cannot help but think um, when someone pulls a gun out or multiple people pull guns out at a parade that it's an act of terrorism by sheer definition. Like, you know, whether it fits the definition of terrorism in the eyes of law enforcement and our government is another thing. But this should not have happened. It makes me sad anytime this happens. It pisses me off that you can't go into a movie theater or a shopping mall or a church or a school without thinking about, you know, shelter in place and, you know, where are the exits and uh, is it safe in here? It didn't used to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. It bothers me. Harry Douglas said he's appalled and disappointed in the firing of 49ers defensive coordinator Steve Wilkes. Punch it.
2: Uh, I think it's terrible. I was appalled. I was also disappointed. When you look at that Super Bowl game, it wasn't Steve Wilkes on the first drive offensively. Uh, It was Christian McCaffrey that fumbled that football. It wasn't Steve Wilkes that missed the extra point that would have put the Kansas City Chiefs probably in a different situation towards uh, regulation. That was Jake Moody. Also, it was not Steve Wilkes who was on offense after getting two turnovers and couldn't score one point off of those turnovers and actually had the ball it is.
1: He's talking about whether or not it's Steve Wilkes' fault in the game. Kyle Shanahan making it clear when he made the decision to part ways with Wilkes that it's not about one game, not about one play. This was an ongoing issue, just not a good fit, is what Shanahan said yesterday in his news conference. It kind of it makes me think like this is going to be an important hire for Kyle Shanahan, an important decision. And not just a hire, but how does that develop? How does that blossom? How does that work out? There is going to be a lot of attention and a lot of scrutiny paid to this move by Kyle Shanahan. He must have been very uncomfortable with Steve Wilkes as his D coordinator, and we've seen this before: multiple defensive coordinators leaving San Francisco for head coaching jobs with the New York Jets, with the Houston Texans. You end up with some turnover, not just uh, you know via free agency, but on your coaching staff when you have success. It, it, I think, frankly underscores the success that the Kansas City Chiefs have had in being around the AFC title game and being around the Super Bowl and winning back-to-back Super Bowls and you know while losing assistant coaches and Andy Reid's staff turning over. Think about the framing of that as you watch the 49ers go in search of their new D coordinator. Anna's in the studio. We'll talk to her next. Anna's in the studio. Anna, what's going on?
7: Um... You know, life life's going on
1: what do you mean life you were surprised that I asked you that I was a little uh, I was I, I felt bad yesterday because I did a big rant on air about how we don't do Valentine's Day posts and then lo and behold in the <laughs> evening you were like are we gonna do a post <laughs> why the shift of philosophy on the Valentine's Day posts.
7: Well, I don't know what you said on air, but I think there's a difference between you know, and I don't have a problem with people who want to go on, you know, their social media and express their love for their significant other and recognize them publicly. I actually think that's sweet. It's my favorite holiday, Valentine's Day. Um But I think that we had the discussion this year. I was like, do you really need that? Like, who are we doing that for? Like, shouldn't I just be telling you that and you should just be telling me those things? Do we have to declare it publicly to the world? And I think we had agreed that we didn't. So I think there's a difference between that and going out to dinner for Valentine's night, having a nice dinner, a date night, and then snapping a selfie and sharing that.
1: All right, that's fine. But but isn't it kind of like valentine's day is supposed to be between you and your valentine and not like other people like why and does that you know what i mean yeah. like why am i posting that you know you were at dinner with me and it was valentine's day uh-huh you know what i mean yeah does it mean something different in uh, that mom world you're living in over there the mom world yeah you know what i'm saying oh yeah
7: the mom world um i don't know
1: I don't know. I Because, like, it's, okay, let me just say this. I am totally in support of, like, it's your birthday. Yeah. I want to make a post celebrating you and tell other people, hey, if you didn't know, it's Anna's birthday. If you want to celebrate and wish her a happy birthday, Uh alert, alert, alert. But Valentine's Day, you know, you know it's Valentine's Day. You know you're at dinner with me. You're my Valentine. Yeah. So, you know, we're posting, we're basically just going, hey, you know, if you don't have a Valentine, this is what it looks like. That's true, you know what I mean. That's
7: true. I mean, it can definitely be
1: perceived that way. Yeah, and I,
7: I, you know, I, I, am I have a heart. I have a
1: heart, is what I'm saying.
7: Yeah, you know. Well, because it's true. I mean, but you can say that for a lot of holidays, though, too, right? Yeah, because yeah. it, like, I think holidays like that can be hard because they can accentuate, you know, what people don't have. I
1: think Mother's Day, Father's Day, is a tough one for some, a lot of people. Oh yeah, who don't, you know, maybe didn't grow up. And don't have mom or dad in the picture or, you know, where I always feel for kids that way, especially. Yeah. You know, when, like at school when they do like, hey, everybody do a Mother's Day card or a Father's Day card. What do single parent households do in that situation? Right. Then it's a reminder to a kid, hey, you don't have both parents there. And I always feel like my heart sinks. Right. In that moment. I don't know. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> All right. Here's one. Rob Manfred, the Major League Baseball Commissioner, did something interesting today. He announced that he is going to step down. He did a big news conference, a bunch of sound on this. Um, He said he's going to step down as the Major League Baseball commissioner in 2029. And uh, he is telling reporters, signaling reporters that he's out. Yeah. What is the advantage of a leader of an organization or a league signaling to everybody, signaling to the constituents that, hey, this is it for me. I'm not seeking, you know, another term, you know. This is like a, a, a lame duck situation or him very dangerous man situation. He basically <laughs> said you can only have so much fun in one lifetime. It was media day today for the Grapefruit League in Tampa. Mm-hmm. All kinds of Major League Baseball sound out there. And, you know, he says he's been open with the owners about the fact that this is going to be his last term. And uh, why tell people that?
7: Um, I'm always curious about that because it's a huge runway that he's leaving for Major League Baseball to go out and find their next leader. Like, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. But, I, I mean, tell me a little bit more about his track record. I mean, are people glad to hear this? Are people wanting him to retire now?
1: No, there's indifference, I think. And I think, too, I grew up with this perception yeah. that the commissioner of football— or the commissioner of baseball or the commissioner of the NBA was on my side as a fan. Right. I don't know why I had that. Maybe yeah. I watched eight men out and on Mountain Landis came in, banned Joe Jackson and the Black Sox from the World Series. And, you know, I had this idea that the commissioner was there for the integrity of the game and was there to advocate for the game itself. Uh-huh. What the dirty little secret is. The commissioner of Major League Baseball, NFL, NBA is an extension of the owners. It's usually their general counsel turned ally, who you know is there to advocate on behalf of the owners. Like mm-hmm. it, I almost feel like college football should not make this mistake. College football is talking about splitting away, and we're going to talk to Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner, on tomorrow's show. But college football has to avoid this mistake. Like Roger Goodell works for the owners. Players do not view Roger Goodell as their guy. Right. Roger Goodell's not there for fans. He's working for the owners, billionaire owners, and the ownership groups trying to make them as much money as possible. And so the decisions that get made by the commissioner of the NFL are often skewed towards the television deal, making more money for the game. You know, does not, let's forget the game, the integrity of the game, the be- what's best for the game Let's go with what's best for our owners and the league playing more games in Europe. A great example of that: players are not on, you know, going really. Let's go over to Spain and play a game. You know, let's go to London this year. It's going to be awesome. No, they're not doing that. They're dreading going over there and playing a bunch of games. So the NBA is the same way. Adam Silver is making all these moves. The players in the NBA are not looking at Adam Silver, going, "That's our guy." No, they look to the Players Association and they say the head of the uh, NBA Players Association is our person. And so what college football has to be mindful of when it separates, and it will separate, I think, from the rest of sports, it has to be mindful of the commissioner's job should not just be to make as much money as possible for the Big Ten and the SEC or whatever these entities are going to be called. The commissioner has to have an outlook and a viewpoint in the best interest of the game in mind well and I feel like along those lines though he's
7: taken a lot of heat in the last few years or during his tenure about all the changes that were made to baseball like all of the rule changes and whatnot too so maybe he's just trying to say like hey I'm on my way out stop you know stop giving me criticism i, I I'm only here for a short time that's all that's I don't
1: left. I don't know if he's doing that I I just don't Maybe he was asked the question, I don't know, at media day. Mm -hmm. Maybe somebody just said, how much longer do you want to do this? He said, you know, you can only have so much fun in one lifetime. He said he's been open with the owners about this being his last term. But, you know, when I think about his tenure, I don't see, like, you know, big sweeping changes in baseball. Game, you know, the pitch clock came in. That was cool. Uh, playoff expanded on his watch. That was cool. But then he had the Astros cheating scandal, which was, uh, you know, controversial. He gave the players immunity Mm -hmm. in exchange for their testimony. And then the rest of it was kind of like, you know, hey, the league is, uh, the owners, franchises have have risen in valuation, and, um, you know, this is all, uh, you know, the A's are trying to move to Vegas, you Mm -hmm. know. We don't know if that's going to happen or not going to happen, and, um, you know, all of that, but, uh, I don't know. I just, I, I guess I grew up thinking that Pete Rosell was on my side in the NFL. He was my commissioner. He was advocating for the game of football. And then I found out later, no, he's not. He's a hunk for the owners. Like this, this, the commissioners are always hunks. Mm-hmm. So when college sports does this, when they appoint a czar as the, uh, you know, and, and we might be talking to that person tomorrow, Greg Sankey, the sec commissioner, might be that person whatever duty that person has has got to include some sort of protection of the game the sport itself like am i naive to think that somebody should be looking out for like the game (laughs) no i don't think
7: you're naive i think you're hopeful um but i think there's a lot of us out there that are cynical as well that like anybody who is put in that position Is going to be subject to the influence of the people that have the power and the money just like everything else
1: yeah well I think uh, if you are major league baseball you're, you're gonna and you're the owners you're gonna go out and find the very next attorney who will negotiate you the best deal on your next media deal and you're gonna make that person commissioner Uh, But you're not going to hire somebody who's going to have the best interest of the game in mind. And I think that's kind of sad. And I think Roger Goodell has fallen into that trap. And I think the NBA, Adam Silver, has fallen into that trap. And I think it's part of why fans feel like this is all about money. This is all about making the owners more money. The players have the players association. The owners have the commissioner. Who's out there advocating for the fans? Mm -hmm. Nobody. Nobody. Nobody's out there going, you know what? I think ticket prices are out of control. Right, we're making enough money with our TV deal. Let's cap what we can spend, what we can charge a family to come to an NBA game at face value. Let's cap it.
7: That would be refreshing.
1: Let's, you know, hey, here's the deal. Um, you know, uh, our salary cap is going up by uh, by uh, you know four uh, percent. Guess what? You can only raise your season tickets as much as the salary cap expands. Those two two percentages have to uh, align every year. Like, who's looking out for the game? Because in the end, the NFL is king for now, right? Mm-hmm. For now. And mm-hmm. I'm saying for now because I think it will be for, for a while. But I am also kind of looking around going, we've seen how the Golden Goose can be killed. Like, we watched the Pac-12 get killed. Like, things can ha- bad things can mm-hmm. happen in the sports ecosystem. I'm not saying hockey's going to rise up and become the number one sport in America. I don't think that happens. But I think the NFL could lose some foothold. If college football gets its act together and college football does it right and separates and, and has, you know, this e- expansive league of 48 teams that, you know, the players are getting paid. It's going to it's not going to replace like the quality of the NFL game, but it could certainly have a real, really wide regional and national appeal. And I think it could there could be some competition coming for the NFL.
7: The NFL has to be considering that. As the price of the NFL ticket continues to go up and I don't know about the price of like a college football game ticket but certainly in my mind it seems like it's much more affordable to go to a college football game than an NFL game like to me like an NFL game is literally like out of reach for a lot of us
1: yep and 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 you know that's a that's a real concern it's a $600 day just to take your family to a game family of four to a game in that's crazy a normal regular season NFL game and the prices look I'm not saying everybody needs to go to a Super Bowl but it really shocked me what we saw in Las Vegas with the prices of the Super Bowl tickets <laughs> yeah. I'm not never I'm used I'm used to seeing. hey it's a couple thousand bucks yeah for a ticket yeah I'm not used to seeing people say I paid 13,000 or 15,000 or a luxury suite cost 1.2 million dollars <laughs> I'm not used to seeing that I'm uh, I'm convinced that's not good for the game. Even people knowing that is not good for the game because you're you're getting farther and farther away from your consumer with those kinds of prices. Tomorrow's program, Greg Sankey, SEC commissioner, will be with us. It will be a taped interview. I'm talking with Sankey for about an hour tomorrow, and uh, he's agreed as part of that to do a, uh, about a 10, 12-minute interview that will air for radio. So uh, Sankey and I are going to have a conversation about the SEC college football, the partnership with the Big Ten, the college football playoff, what's next for the SEC. Greg Sankey's been on the show many times, and he will be joining us tomorrow to lay down what is the latest. What was your favorite Super Bowl commercial? This is like 72 hour old bread here. But what was your favorite Super Bowl commercial, Anna?
7: Um, it had to be that one with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon.
1: Do you remember who in it was the for? Orange
7: Outfits. Who? I think it was Dunkin Donuts.
1: Yeah, it was the Dunkin's. Yes. Yeah. That was clever. Yeah. Did you know that that Dunkin Donuts sold those outfits on their website? They sold out. <laughs> like in eight, in 18 minutes, they sold out. I believe it. People I don't want. Getting... I don't want one.
7: <laughs> oh, oh I got you one. I got you one. I don't already. need one, one, of yeah. we'll one of those outfits.
1: Yeah, we'll get Stephen one of those outfits.
7: Tracking it right now on the, FedEx.
1: The Dunking. <laughs> that was a good one. Um, tweet at me at John Canzano BFT. Tell me what your favorite Super Bowl commercial was, if you so if you wish to weigh in on that. In the meantime, let's do it. Punch it audio. Five at five. The five. Five five at five. Number one.
7: Well, the Seahawks uh, are not willing to cut their veteran quarterback, Geno Smith, loose. They have a $12.7 million injury guarantee that becomes fully guaranteed with his contract after February 16th. And they are going to keep him. They're not going to cut him loose he will uh, stay with the team
1: stays on the roster well, you know who knows if he becomes the guy long term in Seattle but they could have released him and saved fourteen million dollars uh, in in cap space so you know there it'll automatically trigger a full guarantee of his salary on Friday so they they effectively are guaranteeing him the salary they'll owe him next season on the surface, um, kind of points to the idea that he'll be with the Seahawks for a third straight season as a starter. But let's wait and see. The former comeback player of the year is set to, uh, make a total of $31 million against the salary cap this season. And, uh, ESPN's Adam Schefter saying today that, that, uh, the base salary doesn't just represent a value to them, but, to any other team that decides to reach out to see if they want to trade for him. So, uh, we'll see. He's currently set to be the 12th highest cap hit among players at his position next season. I thought he was just okay after uh last season where he was really viewed as, you know, having a great year replacing Russell Wilson. He had 20 touchdowns, nine interceptions. Seahawks did not get to the playoffs. He uh, is a good locker room guy. And let's call him for now the starter in Seattle. For now. Number two. Uh, This is
7: interesting. EA Sports releases the first trailer for a college football game. More than a decade after the last edition of the game. So I'm fascinated by this, because it has to do with NIL. It released a teaser trailer with the tagline, yeah, it's really happening. Uh, Now, you might remember that there was a series that ended before that had to do with basketball. And it was discontinued after a lawsuit was brought on by former UCLA basketball player Ed O'Bannon over the use of his likeness in the game. So EA abandoned that series, but now... With the current rules allowing players to be compensated for use of their name, image, and likeness, EA is apparently resuming its college sports series.
1: Well, there's a number of All-American candidates in college football who are going to appear in this year's game. Now, it's incumbent upon them signing NIL deals. And the launch date uh, has not been revealed, but the trailer got released. Did they give a launch date? Did you see a launch date anywhere? No. All right. Not yet. But people are excited about it. So this is kind of like it's really happening. It's really coming. Full reveal coming in May.
7: Oh, the game's available to be purchased apparently by this summer. But they've got a lot of deals to make, though, in the meantime. You know, can you imagine being the person that has to go and, like, negotiate all these deals with college players? And by the way, have they heard about the transfer portal and how quickly people change teams?
1: Yeah. You know, (laughs) the lawsuit that you're talking about with Ed O'Bannon was settled. For sixty million dollars. It was a class action lawsuit. So EA Sports making a comeback. Video games coming back. It's gonna have the uniforms. It's gonna have the best players, they say. Should be pretty interesting. I'm I'm
2: gonna pop in here for an extra number four. Uh Caitlin Clark officially has broken the record and we're only a couple minutes into the game here.
1: Wow. That was fast. I was I was thinking we'd get about another ten or twelve minutes. She's the record holder. What was it? Was it a layup? Was it a three?
2: Uh, It was a really deep three, like unbelievably deep three, maybe a couple steps inside a half court.
1: Do you think she did that on purpose?
2: Yes, because it (laughs) looked awesome.
1: So she knew she was within three of the record and went, hell, I'm over the half court line, let's do it. Yep, pretty much. She couldn't wait. Wow, good for her. I think it's a great accomplishment. It'll be interesting to see if she ends up in Portland. Number three.
7: All right. We've talked about it a little bit, but it's worth mentioning. Let's stay with women in basketball. Sabrina Ionescu and Steph Curry's three-point contest coming up. Yeah. I'm intrigued by the fact that she says she well, she has the option of shooting from the WNBA three-point line.
1: She's she, not going to, though, She's she. not
7: going to. She plans to shoot from the NBA three-point line. She says she shoots from that range to begin with. She practices from that range, wanting to just be a better shooter, a better basketball player. So I think she definitely gets more cred if she does it from the NBA line instead of the WNBA line, right?
1: Yeah, the the event is won already. Everybody's talk, Everyone's going to tune in. Um, I'm not sure she's going to win this thing, shooting from the NBA line, but I'm going to watch it. So they've roped me back into it. I think it's exciting to see who's going to win this thing. Um you know, this all came from what she did at All Star Weekend last year, mm-hmm. and you know she was set a record, was awesome. She didn't, you know, she almost didn't miss. And this is, to me, this is as close as we can get to the games that we used to come up with as kids. <laughs> and the All Star Game has gravitated so far away from what I think really works that I'm, I'm curious to see this on Saturday, and it'll take place. After the NBA three-point contest and before the slam dunk contest, TNT will have it. Starts at 5 o'clock Pacific time. Who you got? Who's going to win it? Um, Curry or Yuneski? I'm
7: going for her. I'm going for her.
1: Yeah, but who's going to win it? You're pulling for her. Will she win it?
7: Yeah, I think she will. I think she will.
1: Steven, who's going to win that contest?
2: Uh, I think Sabrina's going
1: to win. Wow. Okay, I'll take Steph Curry. I'll be the curmudgeon.
7: I think the public relations of it has won because the slow drip of how this all came together, it felt like it kind of happened organically. I don't know if it's true that it really did happen organically, but the fact that it, it there was this build up and we're all now going to tune in was brilliant.
1: Now, do you think it's wise of her to shoot from the NBA line? Because I do you think that's going to rate? But people are still going to say she's shooting with a different ball. It's a WNBA ball now. Why doesn't she shoot with the men's ball?
7: They can say that. Let him talk. Let him say that. Number four. Uh, let's talk about Bronny James. This one's. Uh, I just. I don't. I don't know what to think of this. So Bronny James hasn't had the greatest year with USC. He's been
1: okay. He's been okay. Okay. Yeah, he's just been, been okay.
7: Right. He's been okay. I mean, the team is nine and fifteen. Um. And, of course, he had the health scare at the beginning of the season with a heart condition, or that was in the off season. But now the Lakers are supposedly talking about drafting him so that LeBron James can have his wish and play professional basketball with his son. Uh, the Athletic's saying that, uh, you know, this stance is rooted in the reality that James' happiness truly matters to the organization. And by that, they mean LeBron's James.
1: It's just weird to me because I'm watching, you know, I pay attention casually to some of the mock drafts. Yeah. I haven't seen Bronny pop up in the mock drafts. Is he a draftable player, or is this a charity move by the Lakers? Like, I think if you give the kid an ample number of years in college, he could blossom into a player that would get drafted based upon the justification of his talent, his merits, and instead we're going to do this? Like, I kind of think as, as, you know, Bronny James' father, is LeBron being a bad youth sports parent by saying, my kid's going to play in the NBA next season and the (laughs) Lakers are going to acquiesce him to try to keep LeBron happy? I mean, he's been so subtle about that desire, right? To play with his son. (laughs) Yeah, it's just... It just puts the Lakers in a really weird position. Like
2: the LeBron yeah. James story is great because of what happened in the offseason, but he averages under 6 points, he shoots 35% from the field, 27 on threes. He's an undersized two guard. Like he doesn't belong in the NBA right now. So if it is to be yeah. drafted, it's all because of LeBron.
1: I actually think the better move would be, you know, LeBron didn't go to college. He should enroll at USC. Because of NIL, he would be eligible. It doesn't matter that he's earned money in the NBA anymore. LeBron should be a freshman at USC next season and play alongside Bronny. I think that is a better move. Give up the 50 mil. You want to play with your kid, go play in college. This is, uh, this is a sideshow.
2: Lavar Ball tried this with the Ball brothers. Didn't work. Can LeBron do it?
1: I'm I'm sure that the, there's enough it's a, the NBA is enough of a WWE league that they would let it happen. But this is such a disservice to Bronny. I think Bronny could get there. But uh-huh. I think he needs to nut two more years in college, like a junior in college. He's not a one and done guy. That's just not who he is. Let him uh, you know, this is his dad I think it's selfish. That's what I think it is. Number five. This kind
7: of what I thought you'd think. Uh, Lenny Dykstra hospitalized after suffering a stroke. This is according to Daryl Strawberry. Uh, A local Pennsylvania bar, Dolan's Bar, was the first to report the medical emergency. Dykstra is 61 years old. Did it
1: happen at the bar?
7: They were the first to report it, Mm. yep. Uh, Kevin Mitchell also confirmed news of the stroke. Says that uh, he's getting better. He's been released from the ICU, but is still receiving treatment in the hospital. Daryl Strawberry says he knew it was me, so that's always a good sign. He's in the process of recovering. Dykstra, Strawberry, and Mitchell, of course, go way back. They played several seasons together in the 80s. I
1: find it, I mean, the Dykstra story after baseball has been sad he you know he got named in the mitchell report used steroids he uh, filed for bankruptcy he got charged with grand theft he got bankruptcy fraud he served time in prison um it's been messy he had he made a uh, he made a threat he threatened to kill an uber driver pleaded guilty to disorderly conduct uh didn't pay rent at his upscale apartment in la got sued for that this has really been messy for Lenny Dykstra. Like, he's really paints outside the lines. I hope he's okay. But the stroke is probably not surprising to people who have hung out with him and been around him for his post-baseball life. That's the five at five. Most interesting story in the bunch. To me, it was the brawny thing. You know, mm-hmm. like, Stephen, come on. Am I just being an old guy on my lawn by going, hey, let the kid play, let him be a college kid? Or is it too much to ask? Like, Is it impossible for LeBron James' son to just be a normal college kid?
2: I think it's impossible, but I agree with you. I feel like LeBron is the overbearing parent uh, at the youth sports games because he just wants Bronny to be something that he's not right now, and he has the ability to get there, but he's not ready, especially after the scare he had, the health scare, in the summertime. like You're not going to be ready to play college basketball. You're not going to be ready to play in the NBA. And LeBron to come out and say, Hey, you know, Bronny's better than a lot. And LeBron said this. He said he's better than, I forget the percentage, maybe like 30% of the players in the NBA. And it's like, no, he's not. And I understand, like, you believe in your son and you want him to be that good. He's just not at that level yet, and it's okay. But he has the ability to get there. He's just putting, he's putting extra pressure on him when there doesn't have to be. And, you know, as soon as Bronny became a high school basketball player, he had millions of followers. Like, he was always going to be a big deal. And now his dad is just adding even more pressure on him to get to the NBA after one season, after, you know, a health scare where he almost died. It's it is a little sad, I think, for Bronny, but at the same time, like I don't think Bronny hates it. Bronny probably likes all the attention and likes to get it out get it out there. So I don't know. It's it's a tough situation, but he's definitely not ready to play in the NBA, that's for sure.
1: I just I think the a parent is the worst person, the least qualified person to judge their kid's talent level. Most parents, okay, and because we cannot be objective, and I say this as a father of three daughters. Okay? Yeah, they're all geniuses. I have to step back <laughs> and occasionally go, I think they're all great, and but you gotta you gotta leave some room in the conversation for you to you know maybe I'm a parent here, right? You know, you love your kid. LeBron loves his kid. I know that based on the way that he shows up at his games. Roots for him, wants him to be in the NBA. LeBron missed out on being a college kid. He never went, okay? He missed the whole experience. He went from uh, you know, high school to the NBA. He missed that experience. Bronny's not getting it either, and I'm not saying Bronny needs to go to frat parties and <laughs> hang out at his sociology class and go to the student union and go bowling and stuff. I'm not saying that. But he, there's a maturity that... You get by going to college, and there are some so- skills you ju- you learn by going to college that I think Bronny would benefit from. And I and I watched him this season, and I thought, you know what? He's a little better player than I thought he was. Mm-hmm. He is. He's a little more well-rounded. He's not like his dad. He's kind of just a, you know, he's a guy who can play defense. He can handle the ball a little bit. He, you know, can score a little bit. He's not a dominant player in any way, but he's kind of a nice all-around college player. But your thought was not he's a one-and-done no, player? I, I actually thought, gosh, I wish he had gone to Oregon because I think Dana Altman could have taken Bronny, and I think he could have put him with Jackson Shellstead and some of the young kid, kids that are on that team, and I think they could have kind of blossomed together. And in two and three years, I absolutely think Bronny James could be a draftable NBA player. But if you put him in the league right now... I kind of I kinda of wonder if he ever could be what he possibly could be. He's one of those guys
2: where if he stayed three, four years in college, he'd be an all league player and then yes. he'd be a he'd be a fringe second round prospect. You know, maybe yes. a first round prospect to a good team that needs a guy who comes in and plays defense and knockdowns a three. But we're treating him as a top ten pick because he's LeBron James' son. No, he he plays nothing like his dad. He is a legit role player and right now he's just not ready for the NBA. Like he does need that season and that experience on the college level.
7: So let's play this out. Let's say LeBron gets his way, okay, and the Lakers buckle.
1: And there's a chance they will. Somebody and they will.
7: And dra- they draft this kid, and he's brought onto the team. What does that look like?
1: What, when he doesn't play. How about that? What
7: does it look like when he doesn't play? What it does it look like if he is playing and he's not good? I mean, this is this is a nightmare situation. And we can talk about followers and attention and all that as much as we want, but... At the end, we have, what is a 18-, 19-year-old kid who has to live with the knowledge that he's mostly there because of his name. Yeah, and... What does that do to somebody?
1: Here's the thing. Like, the Lakers will have two second-round picks. So they could probably justify, hey, we're doing this to keep LeBron happy and keep him engaged. And that's cool if that's what you want to do if you're the Lakers. But in no way is that rooted in reality and rooted in the idea that this team is going to be better because of that move. And that's where I go, like, hey, are you putting making LeBron happy in front of the franchise's best wishes? And is this why the Lakers were trying to shop LeBron to the Warriors? Like, were they going, hey, we need to offload this problem because, uh, you know, we should not – be in the business right now of uh letting lebron turn this into an aau team but
2: if you're a clown franchise like the blazers or the nets or the pistons wouldn't it be worth it to get lebron like you get an actually a hall of fame player maybe one of the best of all time like on your team and at his age he can still play like your team's gonna be better it may may be a clown show and you're giving your entire franchise over to lebron but lebron kind of runs every franchise he's ever been on except for the lakers
1: I I sort of think it might be the Lakers' biggest problem. Kenny Vance is coming up. He will talk NBA. I'm going to ask him about this. Plus, Bob Witsit's book, The Blazers' Franchise. Kenny Vance, longtime NBA writer, sports writer, radio show host, joining us next. In October, we had Bob Witsit, the former president and general manager of the Trailblazers on the show. And remember, Damian Lillard uh, had sort of asked for the trade, and then kind of was walking it back. And um, you know, here came uh, Bob Witsit talking about the comparison between Damian Lillard in a situation he had years ago with Clyde Drexler.
6: Yeah, I think with Clyde it was a little different. He wanted out, but uh, I had to. He never changed his mind. He wanted out. <laughs> I had to sort of work with him a little bit. He wasn't going to come to training camp, and then he wasn't going to go to Japan with us. He, he was trying to put the leverage on us to, to get a deal done instantly. And I, I convinced him at some point in time that Clyde, the best thing you can do is play, be Clyde Drexler, let the league see you're still Clyde Drexler, and that'll give me more opportunity to find a home for you. And, and he did that, and he played very well. And eventually he got, he got his ring in Houston. So once a player tells you they want out, if they then – Kind of do a flip flop on you, I'd be a little bit leery because, you know, you got to be all in. And if you said you want out all summer and then you do a quick, I want out, odds are you're probably going to later on say you want out against.
1: Witsit wrote a book called Game Changer. Here to talk about that and a bunch of other things. Longtime NBA writer, media personality in the market, radio show host kenny vance you can find his work at clarkcountytoday.com as well kenny vance joining us kenny what did you think of witsett's book game changer
5: yeah yeah i thought it was a great first effort you know like he said he didn't throw anybody under the bus he didn't tell any of the you know the, the the stories that would get anybody in trouble but he definitely offered a peek behind the curtain at his years uh with the sonics and the blazers and the seahawks and and a little bit about the other things he's doing in his life and has done in his life. Uh, I And, you know, I've talked to a lot of other people that have no, you know, skin in the game and, and don't know Bob. And, uh, you know, I've got some unbiased uh, r- feedback that uh, they enjoyed the book very much. So, uh, you know, I, I think it was a good read.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, he came on the show, I think, right around the time it was coming out, or maybe right before it came out. And, of course, the Blazers were in, in the middle of all that Damian Lillard stuff and trying to figure out where he was going to go. He ends up in Milwaukee. What, what were your thoughts at the time with Dame and how that all went down?
5: Yeah, you know, it, it's very interesting because I love Dame, and, and he's, he's by far my favorite Blazer of all time, and I think he's the greatest Blazer of all time. I've got nothing but, but praise to heap on Damian Lillard. But obviously, you know, very seldom does a player spend his entire career uh, with one team. And it just became time for Dave, Dame to move on. You know, that contract for a team that it wasn't competing for a championship in a couple of years was going to be an albatross. And there was a lot of reasons to, for, on both sides. Uh, Dame requested the trade, but there were reasons on both sides uh, to get it done. And to be honest with you, I know – the early returns are not what uh, the Blazers or Blazer fans would want. But to be honest with you, I thought Joe Cronin got quite a haul in the two deals for Dame. And like I said, now, obviously, it hasn't turned out to be uh, an immediate success for the team in terms of wins and losses. But when you look at the assets that he acquired, it surprised me between the two
1: deals. Kenny Vance with us. You may remember Kenny from his time at the Columbian in Vancouver and other places uh kenny the uh the when chauncey billups gets introduced tonight at moda center for the game against minnesota he'll get booed it my theory is fans are just booing because they're booing ownership they're booing the fact that you know the franchise has fallen off so much um you know what do you what do you think the billups coaching tenure what's the story of his tenure i guess well, unfortunately, I don't think
5: we know yet, do we? I mean, from an X's and O standpoint, you, you know, I don't think he's really been tested. They tanked the last two years. They, you know, they weren't healthy. They weren't trying to win at the end of the last two seasons. And uh, and so I, I don't know that we really know whether or not Chauncey can coach. The one thing I believe when I watch Chauncey and I watch him interact with the players, I think he's got great relationship with the players I think he holds them accountable, but he does it in a, in, a, in a kind of a mature, grown-up way, and he empowers them and uplifts them. And, and I like that standpoint. I think he's good with younger players, but I think the jury is still out. And I know that's kind of remarkable to say now that he's in his third season with the team, but I do think the jury is still out. One thing I'll add to that is I was really happy that the Blazers didn't dump anybody before the trade deadline and specifically malcolm brogdon i think malcolm brogdon is the adult in the room the adult on the team and i think they need that i think he's a perfect complement to uh simons and sharp and even scoot and and i was so happy that they didn't trade brogdon but one of the things that joe said in his media availability was we don't need to we don't need to take any more steps backwards we need to take steps forward and i couldn't agree with him more and I was happy to hear him say that. I know they've got injuries. You know, I know, you know, Williams is out for the year. I'd be surprised if we see Shaden Sharp again this season, although we could. But so I know they have injuries, but I, I, I do. I strongly believe this team should not tank this year. They should try to be as competitive as they can. And as Joe said, continue to take steps forward or begins taking steps forward they can't afford to take any more steps backwards.
1: You've seen rebuilds, and you we've obviously seen over the years some teams that will get stuck in sort of that purgatory of the lottery, you know, just taking risk after risk. How do the Blazers avoid being a team that, you know, is in this position five years from now, seven years from now?
5: I'd sure be disappointed if they were. I think they got a good young nucleus, like I said. Uh, I I like the return that Joe got in the two trades uh, involving uh, Damon's departure. But uh, when you look at this roster, I think there's some things to be optimistic. You know, I I exchanged uh, some comments with Joe recently, and and I told him, I I honestly believe, and I know I'm in the minority on this, I honestly believe this team is closer uh, to being competitive than it shows. I know the the record is ugly. And, you know, 15 and 38 is ugly. There's just no doubt about it. They've underachieved. Even, you know, with all the injuries, they've still underachieved, When you know, when when they've played um, with with the hand that they've been dealt. So, yes, I totally acknowledge that right now it doesn't look good. It hasn't looked good in the first 53 games of this year. But I still maintain that uh, this team is closer to being competitive than not. Um, Obviously, they've got two – Good draft picks in this upcoming draft. The problem is, though, it's going to be a horrible draft, and I don't know how much help they're going to get there. So it's going to be another interesting off season. It's going to be interesting to see what Joe does with the assets that he has because I don't think they're going to get much better in the draft.
1: Yeah, in, in Bob Witsits' heyday, you know, he brought players to Portland in trades, right? And, you know, obviously there was the signing of Brian Grant. That was a big free agent signing you know, you look back; it may be the biggest uh, you know in the last uh, thirty years in Portland, and it's been tough to get free agents to come. Do you think Joe Cronin is the guy? Is he capable of making those kinds of moves when push comes to shove?
5: Well, I I want him to be the guy. I've known Joe's I've known Joe since he came to Portland, so I'm a little bit biased in this. Uh, I, I you know I consider him a friend. I think he's a quality human being, and when you look at what he's done as a relatively unknown, unproven general manager. I mean, he's facilitated facilitated the trades of CJ McCollum and Dame Lillard and, and he has taken on some pretty big tasks, you know, and uh and so he's navigated some choppy waters and now we gotta see some, you know, some meat on the bone. We gotta see some results for it and uh the, the jury's still out on both Joe and Chauncey i i i, I kind of believe they're probably joined at the hip uh their their um their legacy or their future is is probably um you know coupled in in that regard and you know it, when you look at the fact that the same people that will ultimately make their make the decision on Joe and Chauncey are the same people who just fired Pete Carroll then i think that's enough <laughs> Reason to believe that you know it's time for this team to get better and start showing some progress, so to answer your question, John, I hope joe's the guy i I believe he's the guy, but yeah he we need to see we need to see this promise that they put together start to materialize
1: I'm curious what you think of sort of the ownership cloud and Jody Allen is the trustee and Burt involved, and you know you bring up Seattle. I have people ask me all the time how can the uh, ownership group seems so interested and engaged in Seattle and absentee in Portland. What would you say to that?
5: I agree. I basically agree. I mean, I I don't care. You know, like there was such there was a lot made when Paul bought the team that Paul lived in Seattle. He wasn't he didn't live in Portland. And and there was even complaints that Bob never fully lived in Portland, although he did have a residence down here. But uh, I, I don't care about any of that but I, I you know because Paul was as engaged as an owner as as anyone, well, not as anyone, but he was engaged as an owner, but now this situation, what I'm told is that basically Jody and Burke Cold are not incentivized to sell the team they're incentivized to to hold on to the team as long as possible. I'm talking about in financial terms mm-hmm. that yeah. that when their tenure is over, when this team is sold there's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for them. So uh, they're incentivized to kind of drag this process out as long as they can. And there's no question, you know, I would like to see the team sold sooner than later, no question about it. Uh, I love the idea of Phil Knight's group being the being the the new owners. I worry, you know, because Phil is getting up there in years himself, so I worry what type, you know, what type of a, a landscape – that they would put in place for that. But obviously I think everybody here in Oregon would love to see the sale go through and love to see it go to someone like Phil Knight.
1: Yeah. Cause I keep thinking there are so many, there's, there's so much accountability that comes when you have an owner that's truly engaged. It just, it just makes everybody a little sharper when, you know, people at the top are engaged and they're interested and you see them at games and, that really has been lost, and I think even when Paul was around, you know, there was a feeling like, does he know what he's doing? Well, at least you know he cares, he loves the team. Look at him cheering. I don't know that we have that right now, Kenny, and I kind of wonder how that manifests itself. Uh, what's the right? You know, you mentioned Phil Knight, but you know, what's the right combination when it comes to coach, general manager, ownership? What what should the Blazers ideally strive to look like in that trio?
5: Well, I would never want someone like Jerry Jones. I, I would never want that type of an owner. I would want an owner that let his basketball people do their jobs. And the way it was described to me when Paul owned the team, the way it was described to me, and and, and I think I can say it was by Bob, um, was that Paul, when Bob went to Paul with a suggestion that, hey, I want to do this or I want to do that, it would probably take Bob 45 minutes to convince Paul that, yes, indeed, he got he got the vote of approval to go ahead and do what he wanted to do. But it would take, I mean, Bob just couldn't walk up there and say, hey, Paul, I want to trade Clyde Drexler. You know, I mean, uh, in, uh, that may be a bad example. But whatever Bob wanted to do, you know, when you get it to the five-yard line, you got to go to the owner and say, okay, can I cross the goal line with this? And the way it was described to me is that Paul would make you convince him. He was engaged to that point where he wanted it explained at length of why you were doing this, what the benefits were, everything like that. So, And then 95% of the time he would let Bob do the deal or, or you know, do whatever that he was asking to do. But, you know, so I, I, I think that was probably a good way to hold – his basketball people accountable, but let them do their jobs. So, uh, I I think that's a pretty good model, if you ask me.
1: Kenny Vance with us, ClarkCountyToday.com, dot com. If you want to read him, Kenny, uh, love. Get your thoughts on this. Um, you know, I kn- I think you were around when the Blazers were in their heyday. You know, with uh, Bob Witsits run, and that energy needs to get back in that building. You know, in one way or another, and I, it makes me sad when I see empty seats and apathy when it comes to the blazers
5: absolutely there's nothing worse than apathy and say whatever you want about the 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 wits years and whatnot you know he he he, he was the general manager or president for nine years they went to the playoffs every year they won about 48 games uh, they averaged about 48 wins a year those those were good times and and yes i i'd like to see the blazers get back to that
1: kenny vance thank you man we'll get you back on talk some more nba
5: Thanks so much, John. I appreciate you having me on.
1: You bet. There he goes. He was around a long time. He's now the editor at Clark County today, but he was at the Columbian. He was right here on 750 The Game hosting a show along with Brian Wheeler, uh, award-winning writer, uh, Society of Professional Journalists, uh, honored him numerous times. Kenny Vance, there he goes. Some parting thoughts coming up. Leave it here. By Gabby Marshall. Here comes Clark. How will she go for history? (laughs) Leading scorer in women's college basketball. Caitlin Clark got it done. She needed eight points as she entered tonight's game, uh, Iowa basketball game. Uh, She needed eight points to catch Washington's Kelsey Plum for the most points ever scored in uh, an NCAA career. She came into the game against Michigan at 3,520 points. And, Stephen, she scored the first eight points of the game. She got them all, including the three that you just heard—a deep three from uh, the, you know, the left side as she crossed half court. Caitlin Clark making history. Were you surprised she got all eight like right away? Like, I mean, come on.
2: No, I, I listened to her interview when I when I pulled the uh, the clip of her saying, hey, "We don't want to call timeout. We can't waste timeouts." And she was very confident, and she was very like. Yeah, this is cool, this is a record, but it's not even bothering me. There's no pressure on me, so it doesn't actually surprise me that that's how good she is, And she's like, you know, I'm just going to get out of the way. Eight points real quick, let's just uh, worry about this game, but that was awesome, man. That, you know, Congratulations to her, because she, uh, she is one of a kind, and the way she shoots that three ball, man, it is awesome.
1: Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, let's get her into the NBA three-point competition. I'm sure she'll play there one day. I think she's great for the game. She's obviously great for women's college basketball. Everybody's going to be talking about this tonight. She got the ball off the opening tip. She drove in for a layup. She hit a three from the left side. That's her preferred side to shoot from. She hit another three from the same side. It was a deep three. It took her two minutes and 12 seconds to become the record holder. Um, took her two minutes and 12 seconds into the game. Uh, crazy. Um, you know, scoring the first eight points of the game to get to that point. Um, women's college basketball. Fleeting popularity or here to stay with performances like, you know, we saw Angel Reese in LSU a year ago, Caitlin Clark, certainly Sabrina from years ago at Oregon. Fleeting situational popularity or will people are people in on women's college basketball? And do not be afraid to say the politically correct thing right here.
2: Um, I think it. I don't know that it's here to stay. I think there needs to be another player. Doesn't have to be exactly like Kateen Clark, but someone that captures the nation. And I and I think last tournament when she was doing the you can't see me and that caught attention and then, you know, Angel Reese came out and you know, the way that that game ended with her doing the you can't see me, like I think something like that has to happen and it kind of touches on what we talked about earlier and I always said there's got to be some type of rivalry. And it feels like, you know, There is a little bit of a rivalry between Caitlin Clark and Angel Reese, whatever it is. And uh, I feel like there's got to be more of that if there's going to – if women's college basketball is going to stay because I just – it's kind of like – it's a niche sport just like men's college basketball. Like people don't care about men's college basketball unless there's a Zion Williamson that's dominating college basketball or a Trey Young who's putting up crazy stats. Then we'll tune in. I feel like women's college basketball falls in the same thing, where they need a star to step up, and maybe they got it coming up later. I don't know. Maybe it is uh, Juju Watkins over at USC who's putting up great numbers as a freshman. But uh, I think someone else has to follow in Caitlin Clark's steps and be that person that really embraces it and really can capture the nation.
1: There's some concern that the ecosystem of college athletics is so centric on college football that it's going to ruin – College basketball. Meaning if the same people who are all about expanding the college football playoff, getting the SEC and the Big Ten in position to dominate football, if they get their grubby hands on that NCAA tournament, Steven, they're gonna ruin it. They're talking about expanding it to eighty teams, all of this stuff has been floated. It's the same people talking about expanding it to eighty teams that have also talked about uh, you know, the playoff being more of a Big Ten SEC thing. They know where the money's buried. How do we protect the NCAA tournament while recognizing that changes need to happen in college football? I think it's one of the big questions facing leadership in college athletics. But I they, you know, I, I just think they're going to give television what television wants. And if I'm television, I protect the NCAA tournament. I protect the sanctity of 68 teams now, not 64. I think if you go to 80, you're going to get some really bad, weird matchups. You're going to lose the charm of that opening weekend, there's nothing better on that Thursday and Friday than settling in and having the games on wall-to-wall. We'll have them all right here on this station. It's why we carry them. It's like the greatest two days of, you know, the college basketball, uh, you know, nirvana. How do we protect the tournament, Stephen?
2: It kind of goes to what Chip Kelly said before and have college football be its own thing, being its own entity because... The way that it's going and the way that we focus on college football is great because college football needs to be fixed in certain ways. But it also hurts the college basketball game because when you look at Oregon going to the Big Ten, do they really want to travel that week and go to Illinois and then to Michigan State and then have to travel back? Because you can't just play one game a week. You're going to have to play numerous games. And usually like the Pac-12 plays a Thursday-Saturday schedule. I mean Oregon's going to be out and playing on Tuesday and then Thursday or th- Tuesday and then Saturday and then coming back to Oregon and you're traveling cross country. It's not going to work for other sports, especially for basketball. When it works for football, when it's one week you can travel across the nation, do it one time. Is it ideal? No, but you can do it. And so because of that, I think football does need to go off and do its own thing because we're so because that's the money maker, right? Football overall gets all the money. The NCAA tournament's the one thing that can compete against it, but we are so money driven with the football with the football game. If they add teams to the NCAA tournament, I do think it will hurt it because it's at that perfect number right now, where the bracket's not too big and people can still understand some of these teams. Like you know, there's still the good teams involved, and then you get some of those mid-major upsets, which is what we love. It's what we love, and we love that part of the NCAA tournament. Do
1: you do you fear that at going to eighty, going to you know there's eight now with the play in games? I like sixty four. I never liked sixty eight. I, I mean, I get it. UCLA was a play in team. They advanced to the national championship game. You know, they went they went wire to wire, and it's a good story. But I just and, – and it'll be offered up by people who want to expand the tournament as evidence that there are some teams outside of 64 that should have a chance. And this became a story, like, a couple of years ago, Mississippi baseball, you know, was the last team in the baseball bracket and won it. And Oregon State was in that position years ago and won it. And so – the proponents to expand the tournament are saying, "Hey, we might be leaving the national champion out. Like, talk me out of that position."
2: You could say that for anything; anything could happen, right? And I think even in the NCAA tournament, you you know, you say you don't like the first four. There's been first four teams that get all the way to the final four. So I know it's just like I, I understand it, but at some point there has to be a cutoff. We have to we have to let teams and players earn it on the field and by wins. We can't just give a participation trophy to everybody. Lot, we all complain about participation trophies for kids for you know for youth sports that's what this is going to be if they're gonna turn it in to you know an 80 100 140 team tournament we're just gonna give everyone a participation trophy and say hey the regular season doesn't matter you're gonna get in the postseason anyways you got to have some type of cutoff and I love the fact that it's only 64 teams or 68 teams and then the small conferences get one team in the tournament that they, they deserve it you know what if you win 25 games in the season you go through your conference tournament which is always going to be tough you deserve a chance to "quote unquote" have a chance at the championship. Not everybody deserves that chance. So, as long as we get more teams in, we're going to be giving out participation trophies, and I just I hate that part. So we got to just stop doing that. We got to just leave it at what it is, and that's why that's actually one of my fears with the college football playoff expanded to twelve. Like twelve teams, yeah, there's a lot of good teams, but is the twelve seed really ever going to win an NCAA championship in college football? I don't really think so.
1: I don't think so, but I also think. You got to pay attention to it. We got to we got to make sure that you know television is ultimately going to make the call on all of this. Like I think if we've learned anything, we you know we can sit here and talk on talk radio. Fans can you know write letters or protest or say I'm not going to buy tickets. But if television wants an expansion of the NCAA tournament, it's going to happen. Like it, it, that will happen, and they'll go okay. Week sixty eight is great. What happens if we go to eighty? What hap- you know and pretty soon you're right, like we're talking about two or three weeks of basketball that nobody cares about, and it's too much and it's t- you know and I really hope that whatever happens with leadership in the NCAA and college basketball and college football, whatever that comes down to, we all kind of know that football's going to do its own thing, but whatever that comes down to, I hope that they protect the sanctity of an event like the NCAA tournament it has to stay where it is, has to st- keep the charm. Has to have those opening, those small colleges on the opening weekend that are double-digit seeds, mixing it up against the blue bloods. That is the beauty of the NCAA tournament. It's what makes it so special. It that's why everybody is filling out a bracket. That's why people are getting up at ten o'clock in the morning on that Thursday morning of the first round opening, and they're going, "What chaos is going to ensue?" And you know, people are watching on TV and listening on the radio, and that's. You know, we go wall-to-wall with those games right here on on this station. So I hope that they leave it alone and they protect it. Well, I'll ask Greg Sankey about it tomorrow. We'll have him on the show. You'll hear from the SEC commissioner. Grab a podcast of this radio show. Uh, have a great evening, everybody. The bald-faced truth not here for a long time, just a good time.